Let's get together, talk about the movies that we saw this week. We'll have discussions, talk film news, we'll laugh a lot and act like geeks. Sometimes we'll have a guest or two, sometimes it's just the two of us. Let's crack some jokes and tell some folks to come along and hang with us. Mike and Mike go to the movies. Mike and Mike go to the movies. Yeah! You have chosen wise. You see this podcast? I hid this uncomfortable hunk of audio up my ass for two years. <laughs> and then we decided to call it Mike and Mike Go to the Movies. I'm Mike Smith. Joining me, as always, is the man who just accidentally shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> Mike DeGrisio. How are you doing today, Mike? I am doing great. How are you, Mike? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to get in my Tarantino references when I can. Now, all the uh, theme songs you're going to hear in this episode were created by Kyle Cullen, and our logo was designed by Jacob Honeycutt, or at Jacob Honey on Twitter. Uh, if you ever want to contact us and respond to something we did on the show, you can email us over at MikeMikeGoToTheMovies at gmail.com. So today, we're going to kick things off with some discussions in which Mike and I discuss whatever media we've been consuming lately, and then after that... We're going to launch a brand new segment on the show, Mike. This is cool. It's not every day that we get to launch a brand new segment. Yeah, uh, it's a first except, first. Yeah, well, it's not because we, we've done that in the past, but like it's, it, it's a new segment. It's, a, it's the first time we're doing it. We can <laughs> yeah, just shoot down my ideas. It's fine. It's, it's whatever. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, the new segment's called You May Also Like, in which the two of us act as your own personal Netflix algorithm to uh, recommend some movies that uh, you'd probably like if you were a fan of the movie that we're going to talk about in our featured review. Uh, and today that movie is going to be uh, the new film from director Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, Mike, what was your uh, hype level going into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Uh, when it was first announced, it was pretty high, and then it kind of went down a little bit as I kind of ruminated a little. Like, I got kind of nervous like about you know Tarantino in, in the modern era and what that might be. And I was kind of scared. And then towards the, as we got closer to, my, to the release date, I was like, oh, no, wait a second. I think I'm going to be very excited for it. <laughs> yeah, I, oh, no. I was pretty it's, hyped. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like, a new, every time there's a new Quentin Tarantino movie, it feels like a huge event for me. Um, yeah. Like, he's one of those directors, along with Spielberg, along with uh, Scorsese, where I just feel like every, every time they come out with something, it feels like something I need to see. They're so instrumental to who I am as a film geek. Uh, yeah. and like as a person in general honestly that like every every and especially with Tarantino because he doesn't come out with movies that often you know it's really right. like every four or five years there's a new Tarantino movie uh, he really takes his time with his stuff uh, for the most part and so uh, when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was first announced I was very excited about the concept the idea of him kind of playing around in 60s Hollywood working with the Charles Manson murders uh, and then, you know, time went on, the cast started coming together, and it sounded amazing, and like, I, I never lost hype for this movie for a second, and then the reviews started coming in, and they were all glowing, so I was like, yes, fuck yeah, here we go, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and you actually got to see this on 70mm film, right, Mike? Yes, yeah, I got the, the chance, uh, one of the benefits of living near New York City is there's cool right. shit happening here sometimes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I got to see it at the uh, Village East Cinemas. And, it, I mean, it was great. It looked amazing. I, we had talked about it, I think, last episode or last time right. off the, off mic. That the theater isn't that great. Like, there's just, like, you know, it's kind of an older, a little le- sort of run-down kind of place. So right. the audio wasn't that great. And it, it, I don't, it was definitely not surround sound. Like, you could hear that it was coming just straight at you from the front. Okay. Um, which is unfortunate because, you know, like... Tarantino, it's all about the, the dialogue, and there's so much getting, going on, what's being said, right. and everything that you want to hear every word. And I was kind of like, oh no, for like the first <laughs> 10, 15 minutes. And then I kind of just like relaxed and was like, all right, I just got to let it happen. This is, I can't change it. So I got to right. just enjoy this for what it is. And then I got really into the movie. Um, so it was a rocky start for me. I was a little scared. 
Okay, okay. And it looked, yeah, it looked beautiful. Yeah, I, I wish I could have seen it on 70 millimeter uh, at least. Uh, I'm here in Missoula, Montana. Uh, if I'm lucky, they uh, like the 35 millimeter print might roll around to the indie theater near my house, the Roxy, in hopefully a few, like a, a few months to a year's time. Um, but as right. of right now, it's just playing in the wide release AMC theater, uh, and it looks great. Like when I when I saw it, like it, they actually like the projection was nice and everything. The sound was great. Uh, but I really would like this like, like this movie specifically. I really would have liked to see it on film. Uh, because the yeah. movie itself fetishizes film in such a way that it's like I feel like it needs to be seen. <laughs> it has film. to be on film. It really yeah. has to be. And I remember we saw we saw the Hateful Eight um, together uh, doing the seventy millimeter Roadshow edition. I think right. it was the, the, a, the AMC Lincoln in, uh, in New yeah, York City. Lincoln Center, so, yeah, Lincoln Center, the AMC there, uh, and it looked awesome. Like that was a great experience uh, seeing the Hateful Eight there. Um, but unfortunately, I was not able to get that in time for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That said, I have seen the movie twice now. And I, I strongly considered going again last night um, before <laughs> before we were recording this episode. So that may give you a preview on what my thoughts on the movie were. But we'll get into that later on in the episode when we get to the featured review. Right now, let's get into some discussions. Watch this. These are my discussions. Just when I thought I said all I could say, my buddy and I talk about movies you see. These are my discussions. There is so much to see, you and me. So we're going to talk about movies for our discussions. All right, it's time for some uh, discussions here on Mike and Mike Go to the Movies. Mike, what do you have to discuss with us today? Today, I want to start off with a real quick one. Um, I think it was last episode, I talked about Killing Eve, uh, the BBC right. show. Uh, and I, I had two episodes left, and I watched them. Uh, so I, I'm caught up. There's two seasons. I watched all the full two seasons. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to come back and just mention that because, like, yo, some crazy shit happens in those <laughs> last two episodes. I was kind of like, well, I mean, I wasn't going to mention it that I finished it until, like, I got to the end of the last episode and was like, I need, we need to talk about this, or I need yes. to mention it, like that. Somehow, in those last two episodes, it's it gets better. Like it got it got it, it went to an insane place that I wasn't expecting, and it was worth uh, telling the people, Mike. That's what I'm saying. Okay, fair enough. So if, if for some reason you weren't on the Killing Eve train before last week, get on get on now. Is what okay, I'm yeah. I mean, that's a show that uh, I've been like I've heard amazing things about. I want to watch it at some point. Uh, and one of these days, maybe I'll get around to it. We'll see what happens. Uh, when, when, I get, <laughs> when I get through my list of like 25,000 other TV shows that I, <laughs> that I need yeah. to watch. Uh, Mr. Stranger Things, six months later. Uh, I am I am currently three episodes into the third season of Stranger Things, yes. Uh, <laughs> so. what? You know what's crazy? I said six months. I think it's been literally one. Yes, it's been. I think it came out beginning of July. So yeah, it's been it's one. It's been month. the longest. It's been the longest year of my life, Mike. <laughs> this past month, it's <laughs> been the longest enough, year. But that was enough time for all of the discourse on Stranger Things to just completely pass by. Like everybody watched <laughs> it that first weekend, and then everybody was done talking about it. And now I'm just kind of like moseying my way along <laughs> through <laughs> yeah. Stranger Things. And it's like, oh yeah, that episode was pretty good. Oh, no one wants to talk yeah. about that anymore. Cool. All right, moving on. All right, sweet. <laughs> uh, but Killing Eve—that's that, been renewed for season three, right? I fucking hope so. I didn't okay. look. I should have. I think it has. <laughs> I believe uh, it has. Uh, but yeah. I'm, I'm curious if like season two ends like a massive cliffhanger or something that like needs to be resolved. Pretty much. Two. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very uh, good. Cool. All right. So that's Killing Eve, and uh, both that's seasons are Killing available. To, uh, where Where are they available to watch? Do you know? I know for sure season one is on Hulu, and uh, season two is definitely by means, you know? Okay, I'm not really gotcha. sure. <laughs> um, I didn't look that hard. Yeah. <laughs> say so, no more. Say, you know, our mates. Anyway, um, <laughs> second thing I have to talk about today is Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984, the original one. The original Nightmare on Elm Street, nice. 
The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? You just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the jaw and puking since he saw it. They're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the first six movies got put up on Shutter this month. And I was like, you know, just kind of moping around yesterday, and I was like, I don't know, what am I going to watch? I need to watch something. And I saw it on there and was like, you know what? Let's fucking go. Let's have a, a good a good Freddy time. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, honestly, now that I've watched it again, I don't know if I had ever seen it before. Really? Um, we definitely, seen- we, I don't remember. I think I did, or it might have been just one of those, like, cultural osmosis things where I thought I had seen it. Okay. Uh, I know we definitely saw Dream Warriors, the third one, at a Hudson Hart show. Yeah, that was a couple um, years ago. A couple years ago, yeah, and that was that one's amazing. Uh, but the first one is great, also. I mean, that's not a hot take, and there's yeah. nothing much to add. Uh, Wes Craven is doing his fucking thing, and it's awesome, and it's fun, and it's interesting to see the kind of origins of Freddy. I mean, well, the literal origins of, of Freddy Krueger, right. and, and also like you know through cultural osmosis, knowing that by I forgot, I don't even know how many of these they made, but it becomes just like a straight comedy bit uh, by the end of, it, of what, what he's doing. Um, yes. And in this one, it's not. He, I mean, it is definitely goofy and, like, silly in that kind of 80s slasher way, but it's not, like, him quoting movies and <laughs> right. shit like that. Like, it becomes... So, yeah, it's Nightmare on Elm Street. Go, go watch it if you haven't. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, since... I might have been in high school last time I watched it. Uh, but it's a great movie. It's awesome. Uh, I would recommend, actually. Yeah. I, I Like, we watched Dream Warriors. Uh, uh, you said all six are on Shudder. Check out Nightmare on Elm Street 2 when you get a chance. Uh, Freddy's Revenge. Mm. Uh, which is a really interesting horror movie because it has, um, uh, like, it's been kind of reclaimed in recent years as one of the gayest horror movies of all time. Uh, really? By, like, the queer community. And it's actually, yeah. like, it's it's really interesting. Like, the lead actor was I, be- was, I believe, gay. And there's a lot of, like, gay subtext in that movie. And it's actually, it's really interesting to watch through that lens. Um, wow. So definitely worth checking out uh, if you haven't seen it. Yeah, um, I'm going to definitely. Well, I had kind of wanted to do, like, you know, now that they're up on Shutter, watch, I don't know if I'll watch all six of them, but uh, right. watch, watch most of them at, at least uh, just to see. Because they're fun movies. That's awesome. I didn't know about that, yeah. about, about the second one. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. And the third one, again, is awesome, Dream Warriors. And then I don't think I've seen... I, I, think, I, I don't think I've seen anything between that and New Nightmare, which I'm not sure if New Nightmare is the sixth or the seventh one. I think it's the seventh one. Uh, so I, yeah, I don't remember seeing that on there. Okay. But New Nightmare is awesome, too. So if you, if you can watch New Nightmare, that would, that would be good, too. <laughs> okay. that's, like, that's like Wes Craven doing Scream before Scream came out, basically. I yeah. think I've heard that, actually, yes. Let's just do a whole Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective sometime, Mike. Let's, yeah, let's, one of these days. One of these like, days. Just, just out of, out of nowhere. Once we find like a horror movie that's like tangentially related to Nightmare on Elm Street movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, at, what, at one point in this movie, a character goes to sleep. So, let's talk about all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. <laughs> <laughs> There's a sweater involved in this movie, so... Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we could do it. <laughs> Uh, but my next, uh, to, to move things along, my next uh, discussion is a Netflix original called Frankenstein's Monsters Monster, 
Frankenstein. I created life, and I created it in my own image. Why not? Forty years ago, my father, David Harbour Jr., conducted the noble experiment of producing plays for television. Don't get too close. We've been logging that footage, looking for insight into my father. He bit off a lot with this play. You're pretending to be me, Dr. Frankenstein, while I pretend to be the life that you've created in order to secure funding from her who represents the research institute. Did my father have a compulsion to court disaster? It's taking so long, I'm hungry. You give me cold beef. There's a lot of things about your father you may not want to know. I told you not to dig. Joey was the hot young thing. He and your father would clash. My mother. Why are you crying? You're gonna be digging. You're gonna get dirt on your fingernails. They have to remove your nails. What are you doing? Are you threatening me? <laughs> and uh, <Okay>. <laughs> comment, there's a so, comment there. So to recap, the title of this this is what Frankenstein's monsters monster comma Frankenstein. Frank, correct. <laughs> this is a, a Netflix original. Uh, I don't. I should. I don't know if David Harbour wrote it or direct. I think he's involved in some capacity, and okay. he's in it playing David Harbour the uh, third. So his son's son. Uh, and it's this weird thing. It's it's kind of like, you know, David Harbour the third has uncovered his father's lost uh, uh, ta- a tape of this like made for television play kind of thing. And yeah. and David Harbour Junior is is kind of posited as this great thespian. And there's this recurring uh, joke with him. That's how I got into Juilliard. Like this recurring <laughs> joke about him saying that all the time. Yes. And uh, he's this positioned as like this kind of Orson Welles character, you know, with the big beard and he's kind of overweight and drunk a lot. And uh, but you know, right. Orson Welles at the end of his career or end of his life, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, he's going on soliloquies about the the importance of acting and what it means to be an actor and all this stuff. And uh, it's David Harbour the Third kind of doing this like documentary thing, like talking to producers of this play and people that co-starred in it to like uncover this you know, bit about his father's life. And it's just like a total goof. It's funny. It's half an hour long. That's why I watched it. And uh, it's kind of making fun of that whole hoity-toity, like method actor kind of lifestyle or, or culture, whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, the, there's this Alfred Molina is in it as well, which is very funny. And he's playing this, the British version of this guy, uh, like, you know, the British counterpart, the guy that hosts uh, The Actor's Trunk, which is like a TV show <laughs> where actors come in and they have to, oh, there's a trunk there with props in it and they have to act out a scene with just the props alone and like this whole, you know, thing. it's so funny making fun of that stuff. Right. Uh, you know, inside the actor's studio and like that whole bit. Uh, and it's a, it's a goof. There's a, there's a couple um, also recognizable co- co- comedians um, in it, which I didn't look up their names. I should have. But like, uh, you know, stand-up comedians are like bit uh, sketch comedy guys, people that yeah. like I recognized as people, uh, but I didn't look up their names. Uh, so shame on me. But it's fun. It's a half hour <laughs> long. And it's also, it, it has a lot of the play in it. Uh, like this, you know, the so-called fake play. Okay. And it's uh, uh, and it's like made to look like shitty VHS quality stuff. So like you know, there's a lot of screen tearing and everything. Like it's this lost right. tape they found. So that's fun, <laughs> and it's it's just a goof, you know. So check it out. That's that's Frankenstein's monster is monster, comma Frankenstein. Okay, yeah, that's that <laughs> sounds wild. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird as hell. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Netflix is getting into like these weird like, half-hour vanity projects. Um, yeah. <laughs> like they did this, and they did the, uh, the Lonely Island thing uh, from a couple months ago that right. I talked about, yeah. uh, the unauthorized Bash Brothers experience, which is amazing, by the way. Everybody should watch that. Uh, and they also just put out, I think this was, like, a few weeks ago, Paul Thomas Anderson directed a, um, a Tom York music video that went on Netflix, and it's, like, 12 minutes <laughs> yes. long. 
Uh, it's called Anima, yeah. and it, and it's awesome. Like I watched it, and it's it's really cool. But yeah, it's, just, it's interesting. These this stuff is kind of like popping up on Netflix now recently, where they're just like, oh yeah, we'll give you however much money to just do whatever you want for this like weird special. Um, yeah. Which you know, I guess I guess isn't that surprising considering Netflix you know has a history of just tossing money around to give people <laughs> what cash to do whatever they want. But recently right. they've been like kind of dialing back some of those like weird shows and stuff. Uh, like they canceled Tuca and Birdie, they canceled the OA and that kind of thing. So I don't know. It's, uh, I the, the point is I have no idea how Netflix operates. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone does, and it's definitely just like a house of cards waiting to collapse. Uh, house of cards. Um, hey, look at that. <laughs> a meta Netflix reference. Um, Meant to do but, it. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, their <laughs> business model makes no sense, um, but it results in some weird shit sometimes, and that's cool. Uh, yeah. All right. So that, that's uh, all you got for discussions, Mike? Yes, that's all my discussions. All right. So I got a few uh, recent movies uh, that I wanted to catch up on that uh, I wanted to discuss. First of which is a movie that uh, you talked about. I think we were still doing film milkcast when you brought this movie up, Mike. Uh, this was back in like March, I think, when you watched it. You watched it like, when it first hit VOD, uh, and yes. that movie is called Dragged Across Concrete, uh, which is the new movie uh, directed by S. Craig Zoller, uh, who was the director of Bone Tomahawk and Brawl and Cell Block '99, both of which are movies that we're pretty big fans of. Brawl and yeah. Cell Block '99 was my favorite movie of 2017, so I was pretty excited about Dragged Across Concrete. Uh, and then it came out, and reviews. Uh, there was a lot of strong reviews, and there was a lot of like mixed reviews, and a lot of like reviews kind of pointing out the problematic aspects of the movie. You were not a big fan of this movie, correct? Yeah, I remember uh, not being able to see past the problematic aspects as much as I was in Bone Tomahawk and Brawl and Cell Block '99, uh, or at least they didn't feel as overt in those first two movies. And in this one, it's just like overtly about them. Yeah, I, I think it is very much overtly about them, and I think for a lot of people, the casting of Mel Gibson, like it's tough to get past that for, for yeah. some people. Uh, but basically, the the idea behind this movie is that Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn um, play two police officers who uh, get caught on tape uh, brutally assaulting somebody that they didn't mean to be brutally assaulting. That tape goes viral, and they end up getting suspended from the force. They don't get fired, but they get suspended, uh, and they need to do, get some money in order to uh, support their families, and so they decide to pull off this uh, job, while at the same time, these uh, other guys are working with these criminals to pull off a similar job. They're trying to get this, like the same gold from them. Uh, so there's like basically like three different groups of people kind of working towards trying to get this like gold. Uh, and I will tell you, I really liked this movie. <laughs> wow. Uh, I thought it was really fascinating. It's just, I think S. Craig Zoller is just a really interesting director. It Like, there's parts of this movie that reminded me of uh, Twin Peaks The Return in some ways, where there's just, like, these weird tangents that don't seem like they're going anywhere, but they're just hypnotizing. Like, it was it was one of those, even though it's, like, it's, a, it's like a two-hour and 40-minute movie. Uh, right. And it's, and it feels that length. Like, it feels that long. Um, and there's so many scenes that are just... Like nothing happening <laughs> for yeah. a long time. I remember when when you um, brought up the movie, you mentioned there was a scene where like Vince Vaughn eats a sandwich for like two minutes, uh, and <laughs> it's so loud, and it's so loud. and so loud, and and honestly, like that scene came on, and I was like, this is fascinating. Like I was, <laughs> I was hypnotized in the same way where like when you're watching Twin Peaks: The Return and you get that one scene where the guy's just sweeping for like five minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Like, I, it was the same way uh, with this movie for me. And there's, like, there's a weird tangent where you kind of follow uh, Jennifer Carpenter's character for a little while. She's, like, introduced, like, an hour and a half into the movie. The way things happen, it's like, well, why why was she... Like, you could have cut that all that out, and maybe the movie would have been shorter and, like, more efficient. But, like, I feel like you would have lost a good shot, like, maybe the most important part of the movie as a result. Like, I don't know. There's there's so much going on with this movie. And I think, yeah, yeah there are a lot of, like quote-unquote problematic aspects about it. Personally, I don't I don't like to use the word problematic when it comes to movies just because it feels like 
I don't know, overdone. But what I, I think what I'm saying is like it, there are those aspects of it, but I feel like it's not uh, endorsing those aspects. I feel like it's, but it's it's not condemning them either. I think it's just kind of presenting them, uh, right? And you know, you're having these characters, and I, I don't think you're supposed to ever sympathize with Mel Gibson or Vince Vaughn. Like it's it's very clear that they're shitty people, um, and it kind of gives you a glimpse into their home lives and things like that. But at the same time, I don't think you're ever meant to be like, oh, these are good guys because <laughs> everything right. they're doing, everything they're doing in the movie is clearly not that. But it, even even without all that, it's just a great crime story. Like I, it really feels like a very intense story that I, I found just completely hypnotizing. I, I was engrossed in this movie from like minute one. Uh, and I think even the way that it does, uh, there was like a little weird, a weird meta commentary towards the beginning about Mel Gibson, which I thought was uh, stupid. Like they didn't, <laughs> they didn't need to do that. No, not at all. Uh, like, and that, I think that really, like, I think the way that, that the movie almost begins with that and like, it has that like kind of dress that head on. And I feel, I feel like that's might be something that kind of pushed people away from it in some way, like early on in the movie. Um, but I think what's interesting is it kind of positions originally when the movie starts, um, and you're watching Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson do this, like, kind of, like, stakeout thing, and they start beating up the guy, it kind of positions them at first as, like, your typical, like, 80s buddy cop action heroes, in a weird way. Yeah. Um, and you're watching that scene, and they're cracking jokes, and they're, like, and you're watching it, and, you know, ten minutes later you get that scene where it's like, oh, by the way, you're captured on video, and you see them beating up the guy, and that stuff that you were watching, like, ten minutes ago, like... I feel like within the context of that first 10 minutes, you could watch that and be like, oh, yeah, this is a typical 80s action movie. Like, this happens all the time in these kind of movies. And then you have that scene where it's like, oh, wait. Yeah, this would be horrifying if this happened in real life. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I remember so, I remember he's, like, chewing gum and he, like, sticks it on the railing or something. And he's, right. like, drinking coffee and making jokes about it and, like, and all ha- that stuff. And he, like, handcuffs the dude's, like, leg to the thing instead of his arm and that kind of thing. And, you yeah. know, it's, and it's played as, like, a laugh when it happens at first. And then it, like, pulls the rug from under you when they show you, like, the actual, like... They were caught on video, and like if you, when this is taken out of context, and when this like scene worldwide, it's like, oh yeah, this is this is bad. This is real bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I think the movie has some really interesting things to say, and it's couched within some of these more problematic things that it's doing. But I I really just found it a fascinating watching watching experience. I, I really thought it was a pretty incredible. I don't think it's as good as Brawl and Cell Block ninety nine, which again was my favorite movie of of that year. But uh, and I don't think it's as good as Tomahawk either. I think it's probably his weakest movie. Yeah. Um, but I, I, but I think it was just a really fascinating, uh, experience and, uh, I think worth checking out. That's fair. You're, uh, you're allowed to have that opinion, Mike. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> totally, I just meant like, I'm not going to fight you on it or argue. Yeah. Like I agree. I think that's totally valid and correct. It's just also for me, it didn't work. That's all. Yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely not a movie for everybody. It's, it's, no. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's, it feels like it's operating deep within like an exploitation genre type thing. I, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on here that, um. I, I like. I don't blame anybody for not liking this movie. Is <laughs> kind of what I'm getting at. Uh, but anyway, enough about Dread Cross Concrete. Uh, we we referenced before that uh, I go through my TV shows very slowly, um, mm-hmm. as as we mentioned, um, like three episodes into Stranger Things season three, like uh, over a month after the season came out. And one of the shows that I've been working my way through was Deadwood over the past like year or so. Um, and my plan was to have finished the show by the time Deadwood the movie premiered, which was I believe at the end of April. Uh, maybe it was the end of May. Either way, it didn't happen. Um, I, <laughs> by the time the movie premiered, I had finished season two of Deadwood. So I still had season three to go, which was the last season of the show. Uh, finally finished up with season three of Deadwood, and so I was finally able to catch up with Deadwood the movie. Oh, none would deny the facts and the cost of a past we who gather have known together 
some portion of which must still be measured in blood. Yet the Deadwood community does enter its adulthood. And don't our spirits raise, you murdering, conniving, thieving cocksucker. Resourceful and resolute, a vital part of the new-made state of South Dakota. And this state, a vital part of our fine country. Uh, which aired on HBO a couple months ago. And uh, so Deadwood, if you're not familiar, was a TV show in like 2004 through 2006. And it was canceled after its third season uh, without any real resolution. Like it was clearly building into something in season four. Um, but it never got the chance to do it. Um, and that's, it's one of the, it was one of the great shows of like, oh man, like I can't believe Deadwood never got a proper ending and that kind of thing. It's kind of like in retro, in retrospective reviews, it's been considered like one of the greatest TV shows of that era. And so I caught up with Deadwood, the TV show, liked it. It was pretty good. Um, I <laughs> know, <laughs> uh, I, I think it's, a, it's a very good show. I think the first two seasons are very good. And the third season is a little, uh, there's still a lot of good stuff in the third season. It just kind of flounders around a little bit, but anyway, Deadwood, the movie, uh, kind of picks up where the show left off, except just years later, um, because obviously all the cast members are older now. So I think it takes place like uh, ten years or so after the original series ended, and every, uh, most of the original cast is back: uh, Ian McShane, Timothy Oliphant, Anna Gunn, Molly Parker, all these great actors. And it's it's really cool to see this cast back together again, especially now. Like just it's sort of the same way again, referencing Twin Peaks: The Return. Like all the characters are older now, and it's the movie's like partially about that and about age and that kind of thing and the entire thing takes place um in 1889 around the time montana is about to gain statehood or not montana south dakota north dakota wherever deadwood actually is um i I watched the entire show for three seasons i should know this but and anyway it's it's happening at like the statehood ceremony and that kind of thing um and it kind of just uh it's a it's a nice conclusion to the show it kind of takes a lot of the plot lines that were left lingering from season three and wraps them up in a really solid way it has a great final line of dialogue just like perfect for what uh, Deadwood has been and what the movie was and uh, really solid stuff. It was written by David Milch who was the uh, creator of the show, directed by Daniel Meenahan and uh, yeah, I think if you were a Deadwood fan, uh, you've probably already seen the movie because it premiered two months ago Um, (laughs) but if you're like me and you were like, oh, I'll watch Deadwood eventually, uh, I think it's worth checking out I I think it's a a really, really solid uh, western and you get a really great Tim the Alpha performance out of it and Ian McShane as always, great uh, so yeah, that's Deadwood the movie, and it's on HBO Go and HBO Now uh, right now. Uh, and then I wanted to, or what were you gonna say, Mike? You, you, I feel like you opened your mouth, and then you. <laughs> I did open my mouth. Yeah, I was gonna say I actually haven't seen Deadwood or or the the show or the movie, so maybe I'll be the person that you convinced to watch. I've been meaning to. Yeah. It's been like one of those things where like I'll get to it. Yeah. And I just never got around to it. Yeah, I, I feel like you would really enjoy it. It's, it seems. Like I'm sure I would. It seemed like something right up your alley. But yeah, so Dead with the entire series and the movie, they're up on uh, the HBO streaming sites and stuff right now. Uh, and then I want to talk about uh, my favorite movie of the uh, discussions uh, that I'm going to discuss right now. Uh, just watched this on Amazon Prime this past weekend. Uh, I had been dying to see this for a little while. Uh, it's a new movie from the director of It Follows, David Robert Mitchell, and it's called Under the Silver Lake. Have you ever heard about um, old record albums having satanic messages in them if you play them backwards? Sure. Well, I was watching Wheel of Fortune, and I noticed that Vanna White did this little pattern of glances every so often. She would look straight ahead, to the right, to the left, and then back again. <laughs> and I was like, I was just, I started to wonder, is that random? Is there a reason? 
like a pattern behind it and if there if there is maybe there's something meaningful in that pattern so yeah, I just started taking note of when it happened past seven months I got a complete record I just I've just been thinking why do we just assume that all of this infrastructure and entertainment and open information that is beaming all over the place all the time into every single home on the planet is exactly what we're told it is maybe there are people out there who are more important than us more powerful and wealthier than us that are communicating things and seeing things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us i think it's fucking ridiculous to assume that media has just one purpose right yeah. Now, Mike, have you heard anything about Under the Silver Lake? All I have heard is that it's by the guy that directed uh, It Follows and that it's weird as fuck. But uh, I don't know what that <laughs> entails or what that means or anything, uh, but, yes. but I want to so, say it. Yeah, so first of all, this was uh, distributed by A24, and I love A24. I think they've put out some of the best movies of the last couple of years, but they really screwed up the release of <laughs> Under the Silver Lake. It was, like, it was supposed to come out last year, actually, in 2018, and then it kept getting delayed and kept getting delayed. Uh, until eventually it just kind of like got dumped on VOD um, right. in like in like April, I think. And uh, yeah, so it went on VOD in April and it kind of slowly over the course of the last couple of months started building up its fan base, people who were checking it out, like critics who finally got the chance to see it and that kind of thing. Uh, anyway, it hit Amazon Prime this past month uh, in July. And so I finally watched it this weekend. Uh, basically, this movie stars Andrew Garfield. And I think he's given the performance of his career in this movie. He's incredible. Uh, and the plot of this movie is that Andrew Garfield's like this burnout kind of just idiot stoner drunk dude, uh, living in Hollywood, living in Los Angeles. And he's hanging out one day and he meet and he ends up uh, meeting his new neighbor, this uh, beautiful woman that he becomes obsessed with. They hang out for one night. And then after they hang out, um, the next day she just mysteriously vanishes. She's gone. And he, there's no trace of her. He has no idea where she is. Uh, and so the movie is him creating this like investigation and going deep into like these conspiracy theories and the seedy underworld of Los Angeles, trying to figure out what happened to this girl. Um, and it's this weird neo-noir surrealist mystery film that has elements of horror, which I think you would expect because the dude directed it follows. Um, but it has much more in line with something like uh, a David Lynch, Mulholland drive, uh, type movie, but also like Whoa. a Dashiell Hammett novel. Like it's, it's, there's so much going on in this movie and there's so many like pop culture references and film references. Uh, Jimmy Simpson from Westworld also in this movie. Uh, Ricky Lindholm from Garfunkel and Oates is in this movie and I love her. Uh, Riley Keough is the girl who, um, disappears and, uh, it's, it's, it's wild. It's an absolutely insane ride. Uh, and it's, it's very funny. There's a lot of very funny moments. It's very dark. Uh, and it, it goes to some really insane moments, and it, it goes deep into these conspiracy theories, uh, and it keeps you wondering, like, does this actually mean anything? Like, is this relevant to anything at all? And sometimes it's not, uh, and sometimes it is, and sometimes you're, like, just going deep into this rabbit hole with uh, with Andrew Garfield, uh, and I, I can't really describe it any more than that. You have to really see the movie. It's, it's incredible. I had a blast with this. Uh, the ending, I think, is odd um like <laughs> i'm not sure i'm not sure i'm not sure i'm totally satisfied with the solution of the mystery but the journey getting there is so so good uh and it's and the solution is like you know still fucking nuts and so i appreciated yeah. it for that like <laughs> for that aspect of it um but yeah I, it, of all the movies i'm going to talk about today outside of our featured review under the silver lake is like the one i gotta be like if you're gonna watch one of them under the silver lake is like you gotta see this movie it's so nice good. 
Yeah, the, it, that was playing at, at the draft house here in Brooklyn, the Alma Draft House. Uh, really? But it was like a it was like a one screening at like a Wednesday at 10 p.m. or some shit, and I was like, "Fuck, man, I want to go, but I can't do that." <laughs> uh, so I'm glad it's on it's on Prime now, so I'll get a, I'll get a chance. Yeah, so that's uh, under the Silver Lake. It's on Prime right now, and then I had a couple of quick shout out discussions I wanted to uh, throw out there. Uh, first of all, I wanted to mention that the the Roxy, which is the indie theater right near my house, I don't know if I've ever mentioned that before in this podcast. Um, uh, it's my Roxy, favorite bit. Yeah, the Roxy all month long. <laughs> here in Missoula, is doing something really cool. Uh, they're showing all three of the original Star Wars movies in August. Um, nice. So, I mean, it's the special editions. You know, it's not like the original 1977 cuts, because, I mean, Disney's not going to let those go until they release, like, a massive box set of the Blu-ray or something, however that works. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's still, like, it, how often do you get the chance to see the original Star Wars movies in a theater? Like, not often, you know? And, yeah. Like, it's, it's actually, I don't think they've actually screened in theaters since the 97 re-releases like since the re-release in 1997 and there was plans i remember they were doing those 3d re-releases of the movies right uh and there were plans to actually do 3d conversions of all the movies and re-release them and they started with phantom menace uh and then disney bought lucasfilm and just cut those plans completely um (laughs) (laughs) have i ever told the story before about how colin and i uh friend of the show uh producer colin uh went to see the midnight (laughs) fucking release of phantom menace (laughs) in 3d in albany uh, that's it was great. terrible. It was Wasn't. so bad. <laughs> yeah. Although, gotta gotta say, gotta give credit where credit's due. Pod racing in 3D is fucking oh, yeah. fuego. It's dope. I saw it. it I didn't see the, so I didn't good. see the midnight. I didn't see it in the midnight release, but I saw it like the day of, like right after. <laughs> right after you, I was probably entering the theater as you guys were leaving. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I remember I remember being so like. Like, I was excited when Disney bought Lucasfilm because I was like, hey, new Star Wars movies. But at the same time, I was like, I guess I got tricked into going to see Phantom Menace in 3D. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> the idea was like, how often do I get to see a Star Wars movie in a theater, you know? There's never going to be right. more Star Wars movies ever again. Uh, this is my only chance. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, JK. But anyway, so I went to go see the original Star Wars uh, this past weekend. They're showing, basically, each movie's getting a full week at the Roxy. So they're doing, like, three showtimes a day. The original movie all this week. Next week, they're doing Empire Strikes Back. And the week after that, Return of the Jedi. Um, So they showed the original Star Wars, which was a blast to watch in a theater. It was a packed crowd. Uh, People cheered at the end. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Weird side note to it. I went with somebody who had never seen Star Wars before. Excuse me? (laughs) And you brought an alien from Area Fifty One. <laughs> you freed an alien and went to see Star Wars. That's, That's exactly crazy. What happened. Yes, I can't uh, believe you did that. I went with somebody who had never seen Star Wars before, uh, and I didn't want to like you know. I, I asked her about it like beforehand. I was like, so what? What do you think Star Wars is about? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, because I was genuinely curious. She had like no idea. Like she yeah. was familiar with a couple of names just through like you know pop culture references and things like that. But like she really didn't know anything about Star Wars going in. Um, and so I, I don't think I had ever done that before. Where I, I was like, I think every time I've watched Star Wars with somebody, it was somebody who had seen Star Wars before because it's Star Wars. You know, it's one right. of those things where like most people have seen it since like. I, I saw it when I was four. Like, I'm pretty sure I saw it, like, around the time they came out with the re-releases in theaters, you know? Like, that's, right. <laughs> that's when I saw Star Wars. And, I, like, I don't remember a time where, like, I didn't hadn't seen Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so it's just this bizarre thing to, like, watch somebody watch Star Wars for the very first time. 
And uh, I will say she didn't like it that much. Oh, no. <laughs> Which was also kind of harsh. She's going to come with me again for Empire Strikes Back, uh, theoretically, and we'll see how that goes. Wow. Um, so, but anyway, that's like a weird side note. In addition to Star Wars, the Roxy was also showing... Uh, the Hidden Fortress, uh, which is an Akira Kurosawa movie from 1958, and it was one of the uh, the chief influences on George Lucas when he was making Star Wars. Uh, and I had never seen The Hidden Fortress, uh, so I was like, oh, well, A, it's, an, it's a Kurosawa movie I got to see for the first time in a theater, and B, I think it's going to be really cool to watch this right after I watch Star Wars and kind of compare and contrast the two. And it's actually, it's really, like, the movie, like, The Hidden Fortress literally opens with uh, two dudes, uh, one tall guy, one short guy, uh, wandering around in the desert bickering with each other. Uh, wow. Um, uh, and then they both get angry at each other and they split up and then they both get captured by slavers. Uh, and then they, and then they kind of meet back up in, the, in there and like kind of break out from there. Um, and it's really interesting actually just to watch that because they're literally like it's the first 20 minutes are almost like, identical to Star Wars. Just they're C-3P and R2-D2 basically. Wow. Um, but the, the idea behind it, I guess the, the main influence that the Hidden Fortress had in Star Wars was that George Lucas saw it and... Um, considered the idea of telling the story from the lowliest protagonists to be really interesting to him. Like, this, mo- this movie is kind of told from those two guys' perspective, even though it's about, like, uh, Toshiro Mifune is this great samurai, and uh, he's trying to rescue this princess and bring her to like, this other side of the, uh, like, world that's being taken over by the Empire, and that kind of, like, you know, it's... it's yeah, like, it's the, the bare It's the bare bones of Star Wars, but, like, in samurai times, basically. Yeah. Um, but, look, the whole thing is the story is kind of told from the perspective of these two, like, bumbling idiots... Uh, and that's what George Lucas kind of wanted to do with Star Wars, and that's what he kind of did with C-3PO and R2-D2. Uh, oh, yeah. And I think that's really fascinating. Plus, the actual plot of this movie is very similar to the plot of The Phantom Menace. Uh, so that's also... <laughs> wow. That's also interesting. But yeah, so it was a really cool experience watching Star Wars and The Hidden Fortress kind of back-to-back at the Roxy this past weekend. Um, but yeah, so I kind of wanted to give that a shout-out. And then finally, one more shout-out in my discussions, and then we can move on. Um, I did a whole Quentin Tarantino rewatch... Uh, leading up into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I watched every single one of his movies again, and like I said, th- these are movies that have been, like, you know, deep in my DNA for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, I especially thought that when I was watching Kill Bill, and I was like, I, I think I've seen Kill Bill conservatively, like, 50 times in my life. Uh, like it's, it's one of those things where, like, I could, you, if I put Kill Bill on mute, I could probably, like, recite the movie. Um, as it's happening, you know, like it's, I, yeah. I've seen it that many times. Same thing with Pulp Fiction, same thing with Glorious Bastards. Uh, it's, they're just like movies that I've seen countless times because I would rewatch them over and over again in high school and college. Uh, but it was it was cool watching them again because I actually hadn't watched them in years, like probably since like college actually. Yeah, <laughs> uh, or, or at least the whole thing. Like I'm sure I've seen like bits of it here on cable, like on cable here and there and stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, this all kind of led up into uh, a sort of new watch for me um, because. This is actually one of my favorite Tarantino movies. I've seen it a few times. I've, I think I've seen this like four or five times at this point. Um, the Hateful Eight. I, I think it's a very underrated Tarantino movie. If you look at like people's like general Tarantino consensus, it usually ranks pretty low on their list. Um, really? It's yeah, which I think is bogus because The Hateful Eight's amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think I feel the same way about Hateful Eight as you feel about Death Proof. Oh, which, okay. Is, to put that into perspective. I, I love yep. Death Proof also, but like Death Proof is like, you, you've said in the past, Death Proof is like your favorite Tarantino movie, right? I think it, I haven't, I didn't do this. I, I toyed with the idea of doing the full rewatch, but I didn't get around to it. But yeah, yeah in, in my last uh, estimation, without having revisited many of those movies in a long time, since college probably, yeah. uh, Death Proof is pr- at least, I, I have said before it's my favorite, and I'll probably put it, I'll, I will walk that back a little and say at least top three, just in case, because yeah. I don't really yeah. know. That's kind of where I'm at with The Hateful Eight. Like, I, I think for me, Pulp Fiction's number one because, like, 
I, I, I can't even like envision a world of movies without Pulp Fiction. You know, it's it's one yeah. of those things that was such a massive influence, and also it's something that I was obsessed with for a very long time. And like watching it again, I was like, I don't even need to watch Pulp Fiction again because it's just like it's in my brain. <laughs> I'll just close my eyes and watch it. Yeah, um, but uh, watching it again, like it's, it's very clear it, to me. It's very clearly number one, but then Glorious Bastards number two, and then for me, Hateful Eight number three, man. Um, mm-hmm. But I had not watched this new version of the Hateful Eight that had just come out. Uh, which is the uh, extended Netflix edition. Um, so if you go on Netflix, there's two versions of The Hateful Eight. There's the original theatrical cut that's up there, and there's this uh, new version that Quentin Tarantino recut for Netflix, which uh, treats the movie like a four-part miniseries, which is weird because The Hateful Eight, in its theatrical form, is told in six chapters. Um, but they actually, <laughs> oh my god! But they but they edit the chapters together a little bit in this to make them four chapters instead in this uh, new version. Um, so basically, this is the roadshow version of The Hateful Eight. Um, with maybe a couple of extra like deleted scenes in there too. Uh, again, I saw the, we saw the roadshow version together, um, but I haven't seen the roadshow version since then, so my memory's a little bit foggy of of what is yeah. and is not in the roadshow. But anyway, this is the extended Netflix version. It has a lot of the same stuff that was in the roadshow. It might have like an, an extra couple of scenes, uh, and I really enjoyed it. It's the Hateful Eight. It's still the Hateful Eight, like in all its glory. Um, you know, it's seventy millimeter, like awesome camera glory, uh, which is tougher to replicate on a you know TV, but still, yeah. Uh, but it's still awesome. I think it's still one of Tarantino's best. I think the the structure of it being a miniseries is interesting. I was when they first announced it, I was against it, like, and then of course. At, because I thought, like, the way the way it popped, because it just popped up randomly one day on Netflix. And I think, and I thought, along with others, that, like, Netflix had, like, chopped up the Hateful Eight on their own and, and tried to, like, make it more bingeable or something uh, to yeah. get people to watch it. And to me, that was, like, uh, <laughs> to me, that was, like, the worst possible thing they could be doing. But then I found out that Quentin Tarantino actually did it himself. And I was like, oh, well, uh, all right. I guess I can give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah, if he's going to do it, then fine. Um, so, yeah. And the way it works, like, it starts off with, like, an opening credits every time. Like, you know, that opening shot of the Hateful Eight with, that's on the cross, and you just hear that low Ennio Marconi music that was like, that every episode starts off with that. Really? Which which was, uh, I watched them all in one sitting, and I, I, I am a firm believer that the skip intro button should not exist. However... <laughs> <laughs> be that as it may. Be that as it may. Uh, that is a really long intro. <laughs> I was going to say, no wonder the runtime on each one is like 57 minutes. It's yes. 20 of it is that opening credits. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, so, I mean, I actually did watch it the uh, each time because, again, I am firmly against the skip intro button. But that it was testing my patience. Um, you were tempted. The, by the fourth one, for sure. And then, yeah, so it has that at the beginning. It has the credits at the end. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's still basically the same movie. It's just kind of chopped up in a different format. Uh, I, I think the episodes, like the, the, the act breaks are very abrupt, I think, where they cut off, um, like from episode to episode in a, in a couple of cases. Um, but if you're binging it, like it's not that big of a deal because you're just like moving on to the next one. Um, right. so yeah, it's the Hateful Eight. It's still great. More like the Hateful Great. Am I right? Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the extended Netflix version. I would say if you're going to watch the Hateful Eight. I would watch the theatrical version until such time as the roadshow version becomes available to watch, like in a normal movie form, um, right. because because that would be like the ideal version of the movie for me. But uh, unfortunately, uh, this Netflix version exists, and you can watch it, and you get the stuff from the roadshow, but you gotta watch it as like a TV show, which you know it's it's just a different way of watching it. Basically, like, I, I yeah. prefer I prefer watching it as a movie, but if you want to watch it as a TV show and like watch an episode a night or something, like I think it would work that way too. 
but yeah, that is The Hateful Eight, uh, extended Netflix edition, and uh, I believe that wraps up our discussions, Mike. Uh, yes. So let's move on into our new segment called You May Also Like. If you like this random movie, you may also like these. If you don't like these movies, then you have half a brain. We're like the Netflix algorithm, but with no so just let these random movies put a smile on your face. All right, it's time for our brand new segment on the show uh, called You May Also Like. Thank you. Go out to uh, Kyle Cullen for that uh, new theme song, by the way. That's uh, pretty oh, man, He's so good at those. So good. So good. Uh, anyway, yeah, so the idea behind this segment, we were uh, kind of thinking about what we wanted to do for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because this is a movie that is so deeply entrenched in movies. Um, and it got me, like, watching it got me thinking about, like, all the other movies that I love that are kind of like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, or all the movies that influence this movie, or all the movies that it's kind of cherry-picking from. Uh, and it kind of got me thinking, like, you know, we should just rip off Pure Cinema Podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Take the things we, you love and just do that. And we exactly. love that show. So. We're, yeah, we're Tarantinoing the whole thing. Uh, yep. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so basically the idea behind Pure Cinema Podcast is they usually like pick like five movies in a category and like recommend it for this reason. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to take Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and say, you know what? Uh, we're going to act as if we're the Netflix algorithm, essentially. Uh, so right. you know how like a movie ends on Netflix, and then once the movie ends, you know the credits kind of pop up in a little corner, and then you get like you know these little like boxes in the other corner that say like, hey, if you liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you may also like dot dot dot. So that's kind of the idea behind this. We each picked three movies, and uh, they're, they're all they all kind of tie into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in some way. Like they're movies that I think if you liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you may also like these movies that we're going to pick. Uh, yeah, and that's the idea behind the segment. So, uh, Mike, without further ado, uh, what's your first movie? Uh, that you chose for uh, this new segment. Uh, my first recommendation is The Dirty Dozen. I take it you don't deny your responsibility for the fact that on the night of April 1415, a military establishment of the United States Army was the scene of a drunken party at which no less than seven female civilians took an active part. Oh, yes, sir, they took an active part, all right. Excuse me, gentlemen. Are you in a position to offer even the remotest mitigating circumstances? Yes, sir. Oh, Sergeant, more ice. Yes, sir. Well? You offered those men a chance to get off the hook, and they worked damn hard at it. Now they're just shaping up, you're going to say sorry, fellas, the deal's off, huh? Why? Well, you've only yourself to blame for that. You're the one responsible for those women being in camp. All right, so I broke an army regulation. What are you going to do, kill five men and send the rest to prison for life? Because if you did that, you'd have to lock up half the United States Army officers included. And I'm picking this movie. Well, oh, this is kind of tough. So we, we kind of took different uh, approaches to how we came about our selections. And the ones I, I came up with uh, were movies that are sort of influencing the movies that take place in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, our, you know, okay. Leo's character, Rick Dalton, uh, is a kind of aging Hollywood star, you know, kind of TV star or whatever. And he's making a, a run of movies here, like, you know, prior to the events of once upon a time in hollywood and it's hard to talk about these i guess without spoiling spoiling slash reviewing once upon a time in hollywood <laughs> yeah however talk about some of the like the in-joke movies and stuff like that i think that's, that's yeah and and one of the movies that uh you know rick dalton's big breakout movie kind of thing is his late period of his career was the 14 fifths of mccluskey uh, <laughs> yes. which is the best second best name i guess because uh, i have one for the best name later uh yes. 
for a movie, and that is this kind of like 14 uh, ragtag World War II American soldiers get sent behind enemy lines uh, to, you know, take out the Nazi leadership, which is the plot of Dirty Dozen, uh, right. which is 12 ragtag guys get sent behind enemy lines to take out <laughs> the Nazi leadership. So, yeah, I feel like, you know, if, uh, uh, that's kind of my, was my approach, was these movies that are kind of um, about or take place within the movie, within Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, the movies that influenced the movies Rick Dalton made. <laughs> Right. So yes. there's hashtag layers is what I'm saying. Exactly. And that's something that Tarantino, I mean, we were, uh, Tarantino was kind of talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he was basically saying, like, everything in this movie is, like, uh, he really wanted it to feel as if it could have actually happened within the actual 1960s Hollywood. Like, every right. like every movie that Rick Dalton works on, every TV show he works on, is populated by, like, the actual people who would have worked on those movies and TV shows uh, in right. the 1960s. Uh, which I think is really fascinating. Like, I mean, there's a there's a long stretch of the movie in which uh, Rick Dalton is shooting the pilot for a TV show called Lancer, uh, and Lancer was a real TV show back in the '60s, um, which I did not know until after I saw this movie. Wow. Uh, and and then like I, like I basically one of the great things about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is it sent me down this just rabbit hole of research of like oh, yeah. old old Hollywood stuff, which was great. Uh, and Lancer was a real show, and Timothy Alphon is playing the actor who was actually the star of Lancer, James Stacy. Uh, Nicholas Hammond in this movie is playing Sam Wanamaker, who was the director of the pilot of Lancer, uh, and that kind of thing. Like, it, it, there's so much stuff like just deep into it, which uh, I found fascinating. Um, and so, yeah, the 14th Fist of McCluskey is, like, exactly the kind of, like, Dirty Dozen movie that Rick Dalton would have starred in in that period. Right. Uh, you know, and it has all the... I, f- I didn't write down all the names. I know Telly Savalas, at least, uh, Donald Sutherland, which sure. Telly Savalas at least gets name-checked in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Uh, you know, all these kind of, you know, I don't want to say older... Because uh, they would both, you know, Donald Sullivan at least, would have a, a very long career after that. Uh, but, you know, kind of guys that were in action movies in the 50s and stuff were in these kind of older older men roles in Dirty Dozen, which is what Rick Dalton was. <laughs> is, or right. what Rick Dalton is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. Cool. So that's uh, your first recommendation, which is yes. uh, The Dirty Dozen uh, from 1967, classic. Uh, I'm going with something much more modern. And my approach to this, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is this, uh, you know, kind of two-header movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt playing, like, kind of best friends uh, in a period Hollywood setting, and it's a movie that stars Margaret Qualley. Um, so, that, so that reminded me of uh, my first recommendation, which is why I'm bringing it up. Uh, the Nice Guys from 2016. You can afford to live like this as a PI? What's the message? Oh, right, right. <clears throat> Stop looking for Amelia. Right? I'm not even looking for Amelia. She's a person of interest, man. I'm, I'm fine. I'm done. Put a fork in me. Don't really put a fork in me. Amelia's going to be very happy that you got the message so quickly. It's going to make her smile. That's good. Now, <clears throat> I got one more thing I need to ask you before we're done here. You and not hired me. Bingo. Yeah. So we can do this the easy way. We can do it the Glenn. hard way. Glenn. What? Lily Glenn. Two ends. Old lady hired me to find her niece on Tuesday. You just gave up your point. I made a discretionary revelation. No, no, you just gave her up. I asked you one simple question. But, 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 but you gave me all the information. I thought that's what you wanted. What? Now, I'm very sorry that you didn't get the message. Me too. But I get it now. <clears throat> I get it. I dig it. What about now? You get the message now? Yep. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm cool. All right. Give me your left arm. Huh? 
Your left arm. Give me your left arm. This one. No. Yeah, come on. No. No. Did you cut yourself? I'm dealing with an injury. Right. Look, when you're talking to your doctor, just tell him you have a spiral fracture of the left radius. No. No. Deep breath. No. Which nice. of course was directed, written and directed by Shane Black, who is uh, the director of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man Three, uh, writer of the Long Kiss Goodnight, the Little Weapon movies, uh, all that stuff. And yeah, the nice guys. Um, I wanted to bring this up. I, uh, to me, it almost felt too obvious. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's obvious at all. And that's why it's amazing. Okay, fair enough. It, it, it almost felt too obvious, but at the same time, it's a movie that I feel like more people need to see. You know, it's yes, it's one correct. of those things where it's like, uh, I love this movie so much. I was so hyped for it when it was coming out. I was one of the like five people who saw it in theaters. Uh, <laughs> along, uh, you were one of them too. Uh, I remember yeah. we we, review, we reviewed it on Film Bookcast a few years ago, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was so hyped for it, and I absolutely loved the movie. It's just one of those things. Like, it just hit me right in like everything that I love about movies was in the Nice Guys, uh, and it is this period story set in Hollywood. Although it, this is the late seventies, uh, instead of the late sixties, and similarly to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it uses like the history of that era. Uh, for like background gags and like ba- like you know just references here and there like it uses the, uh, the gas crisis with Jimmy Carter and all that stuff and the um, the protests that are happening around that time uh, and it uses that to really great effect and you know it stars Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe as these two guys who are butting heads but eventually kind of work together and uh, it's just great plus Margaret Qualley uh, from The Leftovers uh, is in both movies and it, <laughs> it just made me think of that there you uh, go. And both movies also feature like precocious children uh, too, with, uh, with the nice guys. <laughs> the nice guys featuring Angoria Rice uh, as Ryan Gosling's daughter, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood featuring uh, Julia Butters as this uh, do- this uh, child actor that Leonardo DiCaprio kind of bonds with on set uh, for a little bit too. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of similarities between the nice guys and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Although the nice guys is a much more plot driven, mystery driven movie than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, but uh, definitely. Uh, worth checking out. That's why that's uh, my first recommendation. There you go. My, uh, yeah. my second recommendation is a little bit of a cheat of what I was talking about with the first one, where I was like, oh, it's the movies that influenced the movies in the in the movie, because uh, it's yeah. The Man from U.N.C.L.E. from 2015, <laughs> directed by uh, Guy Ritchie. <laughs> you don't look like you slept much last night, Mr. Devaney. Funny you should say that, Madame Vigiguero. I think this scotch is helping either. Our suspicious man... I would say you put something in my drink. It's much easier to trust a drink you fixed yourself. But how do you know I was going to drink the scotch? I didn't. I laced all the drinks. I don't like to leave much to chance, Mr. Solo. I thought I was doing so well. Oh, don't be so hard on yourself. You were doing fantastically well. What are you doing? I've been here before. And last time I fell rather badly and hurt my head. So it didn't influence the, the you know Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but uh, my, my connection is, it, Man from Uncle is name checked in in the movie a bunch. You know, uh, Rick Dalton, his career at this point has been relegated to like being the bad guy, the heavy, and all these kind of uh, action TV shows. You know, like FBI and, and Man right. from Uncle. I think they talk about he was in an episode and like all this stuff. Um, so yeah, I just thought that was a, a pretty obvious pick, also, uh, or could be an obvious pick. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's you know, it's action movie set in the '60s. It's it's just the, the Guy Ritchie version of the show. <laughs> so I, I don't know what what else is there to say. It's Man uh, from Uncle. That's my pick. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I like the Man from Uncle too. I haven't seen that since it was in theaters actually, but uh, I remember enjoying it quite a bit. Uh, and we reviewed that on Film Bookcast also too. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's another one that we reviewed back in the day. Um, but yeah. So oh, cool. So you know, the Man from Uncle is your second choice. 
And uh, for my second one, going uh, a little bit further back in time uh, in terms of Hollywood, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I was wondering whether I should bring this up again because I was like almost like, is this too obvious? But at the same time, I was thinking, like, maybe it's just obvious to me because I love it so much. Uh, and that is uh, from Joel and Ethan Cohen, uh, Barton Fink from 1991. What do you got for me? What the hell happened to your face? Nothing, it's just a mosquito bite. Yeah, like hell it is, you know, mosquitoes in Los Angeles. Mosquitoes breed in swamps. This is a desert. What do you got for me? Well, I... I'm the beery picture. Where are we? What do you got? Well, I'm... I'm having a little trouble getting started. Getting started? Christ, Jesus, started? You mean you don't have anything yet? Well, not much. What the hell do you think this is? Hamlet? Going with the wind ruggles of red... It's a goddamn V picture. Big men in tights, you know the drill. I'm afraid I don't really understand that genre. Maybe that's the problem. Understand understand shit i thought you were going to consult another writer on this well i've talked to bill may bill may may you some help the guy's a souse it's a great writer a great souse you don't understand pain because he can't write souse souse can't write but he manages to write his name on the back of his paycheck every week but i thought no one cared about this picture you thought where the hell did you get that from you thought listen i don't know what the hell you said to lipnick but the son of a bitch likes you you understand that thing he likes you he's taken an interest Never make Lipnick like you. Never! I, I, I don't understand. Death, he likes you! He's taking an interest. What the hell did you say to him? I didn't say anything. Well, he's taking an interest. That means he'll make your life hell, which I could care less about. But since I drew the short straw to supervise this turkey, he's going to be all over me, too. Fat ass son of a bitch called me yesterday to ask me how it's going. <laughs> Don't worry, I cover for you. I told him you were making progress. We were all very excited. Which is, again, one of my all-time favorite movies. I think the Coen Brothers' best movie, like, bar none. Uh, and it's one of their first ones. And this, the, uh, the history of this movie is really fascinating because they wrote it um, while they were making Miller's Crossing, which is a movie that came, that came out um, before this one. Uh, and basically they were writing Miller's Crossing and then they just got into... they completely stalled out. They got writer's block. They had no idea what they wanted to do with the movie. So they started writing Barton Fink, Barton Fink instead, which is a movie about a writer with writer's block. <laughs> and they wrote it, like, really quickly. Like, really quickly. And when they finished it, they were able to finish the script for Miller's Crossing. Like, they had figured out the ideas that they wanted to figure out. So they were able to finish Miller's Crossing and shoot that movie. And then, as soon as Miller's Crossing was done, they moved on to shoot Barton Fink. Uh, and I think... The reason I chose this movie is because, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood takes a look at Hollywood in the 60s from the actor's perspective. Uh, right. And I think what's interesting is this takes it from a different perspective. A, it's from the 40s, 1941, um, but it's from the writer's perspective as opposed to an actor's. And so you see kind of a different side of Hollywood and a different side of movie making. Uh, and it is a different period of Hollywood. It's 1941, so it's, you know, it's very different from 1969 Hollywood. Uh, and it's filled with these kind of weird asides and symbolism that may or may not mean anything. Uh, and so much of it is about the uh, the narcissism of the artist itself. <laughs> and uh, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood definitely has that too. And so it, uh, to me, that this it feels like it would be a really good pairing to watch with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is uh, Barton Fink, the, uh, the Coen Brothers movie from 1991. So do you want me to test our friendship right now or no? Uh, I, I'm already aware that you've never seen Barton Fink. Like. Okay. Yeah, I've never, I've never gotten around to Barton Fink. Maybe after yeah. Deadwood. I'll, no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think we, we've talked about this in the past. Like, oh, you got to watch Barton Fink. And you're like, I'll get around to it. Um, <laughs> so, but yes, please watch Barton Fink because it's awesome. Uh, I, I have the uh, the Kino Lorber Blu-ray, actually. Really? Uh, which, I, which I bought a little while ago. Um, so it's next time like, Kino Lorber's having a sale, just uh, keep that in mind. It's, yeah. It's there. I'll, I'll remember. Now that I'm yeah. collecting Blu-rays, apparently. It's right. my life, I guess. <laughs> Only Vinegar Syndrome Blu-rays, though. Well, and Criterion. I spent $100 on their uh, Criterion oh, sale yeah. recently. <laughs> I so. forgot you did that, yeah. But it would have been 200 so it was worth it because the sale exactly. set off. 
You it's know? like you're losing money if you don't spend it. Yeah, I can't afford not to buy them. <laughs> All right, Mike, what's your what's your last uh, recommendation for the uh, You May Also Like segment? Uh, my last recommendation is a cheat in a different way than my last pick. Uh, this one is a double pick uh, because I couldn't okay. really decide. Uh, All right. So I, I wanted to it felt man it's pretty funny that we all we both were like well these are all obvious to us but they might not be to everybody um, that's true I didn't want to pick a a spaghetti western because you know kind of the whole thing is you know Rick Dalton's career uh, towards the end of the movie and stuff he finally caves I guess and starts making spaghetti westerns is that a spoiler should I not have said that uh, it's fine I mean okay. <laughs> like honestly okay. honestly the thing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I think it's a very difficult movie to spoil, Un- unless you're talking about the actual ending of the movie. Right. Um, I-, I think there's very like because most of the movie is like this, just kind of hanging out with these characters throughout the day. There's very little plot going on. Yeah. In Once Upon a Time. So I don't think it's a spoiler to say that at some point Rick Dalton makes spaghetti westerns, right? Okay. Yeah. I'm sure. I take, mean, I'm, you, you convinced me. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> That's all that matters. <laughs> so right, there's a whole a whole sequence, a whole segment, whatever about the spaghetti westerns, and I didn't want to pick one because it seemed obvious. Even though that features my favorite title, fake title, which is uh, "Just Shoot Me, Ringo," said the Gringo, which is an I, incredible I think, fake title. I think I think it's actually "Kill Me Quick, Ringo," said the. Is Gringo. that what it is? I think it's something like that. Yeah. Well, either well, way, uh, Colin, please check on that for us if you can. Yeah, Colin, let <laughs> us can. know. Yeah. Uh, either way, it's great. And thus, thus said, uh, my, my recommendation is for a few dollars more from 1967. Well, well, if it isn't the smoker. Well. Remember me, amigo? Of course you do. El Paso. It's a small world. Yes, and very, very bad. Now, come on, you light another match. I generally smoke just after I eat. Why don't you come back in about ten minutes? Ten minutes, you'll be smoking in hell. It's, it's Sergio Leone, right? Yes, it Maddox. is. Okay, <laughs> I got so scared. <laughs> uh, directed by Sergio Leone. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's uh, Clint... Oh my God! Eastwood, Eastwood, man, come on, Levon Cleef. <laughs> oh man, look, it's I worked today. Let's, that's fair. Let's say that. <laughs> had to do um, things. I had to get, leave the house, and that takes a lot out of you, you know. <laughs> uh, and it's a spaghetti western, and it's it's great. Uh, it's you know the Dollars trilogy, which you know ends it's um, ends with the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and. Fistful of Dollars is the first one, so I feel like I'll go. I'll be weird and pick the second one, which I honestly yeah. I haven't seen the three of them in a very long time, uh, probably since college, which is pretty funny that we, <laughs> that, that keeps coming up. So yeah, I mean, that, that seemed like the pretty obvious pick I, I wanted to, and then my, my cheat, my second pick for this to fill this slot is a movie I recently talked about, uh, in discussions called lust in the dust from, uh, 1985 directed by Paul Bartel, which vinegar syndrome recently just put out on Blu-ray. Okay. And this is that's kind of like a spoof of spaghetti western, so I wanted to bring it up as this kind of like uh, looking back on kind of thing, looking back on uh, spaghetti westerns, which Once Upon a Ho- Time in Hollywood is doing in some weird meta way because it's Tarantino now writing about them then in the sixties. And Less Than the Dust stars Tab Hunter, which uh, on the Pure Cinema podcast episode with Tarantino, he talks about as Tab Hunter being one of the many uh, real life inspirations for Rick Dalton. 
I wanted to throw Lust in the Dust in there because it's kind of, you know, more connected that way. That it features cool. one of the guys and it's about spaghetti westerns, so there you go. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, okay, so you, you tend to pick four movies then with uh, for a few dollars I ch- more. I Lust cheated, the- yes. You, you cheated with Lust in the Dust. Uh, I, I will say, I, before I get into mine, I was considering throwing in um, Smokey and the Bandit. Um, because Ooh. that would because because so much of the relationship between um, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth is based on the relationship between um, Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham, uh, his stunt double on Smokey and the Bandit and several other movies, and eventually Burt Reynolds' director in a lot of uh, in a lot of movies. Uh, I ultimately did not pick that movie, but it is a obviously well known, very good movie, and you should go check it out. I, I think I felt like that one was too obvious, and so I went with <laughs> a, some, something a little more something a little more obscure, uh, even though it's still by a big name director. Uh, my pick, my last pick for uh, this uh, new segment on the show uh, is directed by Sam Raimi. And as you know, I'm a huge Sam Raimi fan. Yes. Uh, director of the Evil Dead movies, the Spider-Man movies. Uh, but I feel like those are the only movies that, like... like he's, he, There are other movies that he's made that, like, get, like, acclaim and, like, you know, success and stuff. Drag Me to Hell was big. Uh, a Simple Plan is a, a really respected movie. Dark Man is a lot of fun. Um, but there, there are movies in his filmography that I feel like are just super underrated. And one of them is uh, his Western, which is called The Quick and the Dead. I'm confused. All I hear from you, you spineless cowards, is how poor you are. How you can't afford my taxes, my protection. And yet somehow, you've all managed to find the money to hire a professional gunfighter to kill me. Where's all this money coming from? What am I to think? If you got so much to spare, I'm just going to have to take some more off you. Because you clearly haven't got the message. This is my town. If you live to see the dawn, it's because I allow it. I'm in charge of everything. I decide who lives or who dies. Your gunfighter's dead. Old news. Have you ever seen The Quick and the Dead, Mike? I have seen it, but it's been a very long time since I've okay. seen it. But it might I think it might also be one of those movies um, that I don't know if I've ever seen the non-network uh, like broadcast, like the TBS okay. version or whatever. Gotcha. Uh, which I think is also how I had only ever seen, I think, Nightmare on Elm Street. I might have only seen that way also. Uh, now that okay. I'm thinking about it. So, yeah. T- tell me about The Quick and the Dead, Mike. I mean, The Quick and the Dead is so cool. I think it's so much fun. It was relatively early in Sam Raimi's career. This was 1995. I believe it was Russell Crowe's very first movie in America, actually. Wow. Uh, and the plot of this movie is that Sharon Stone rides into town just in time for this town-wide gunfight tournament uh, that's hosted by uh, Gene Hackman, who is, like, the villain of the, of the movie. Uh, and it's very much structured like Enter the Dragon uh, with Bruce Lee or uh, even like a Mortal Kombat video game where it's, you right. know, just like, you know, every, everybody has like these tiers and like, you know, these uh, face-offs against each other and you kind of like gradually get to the finalists and all that stuff. Uh, it came to mind because this movie stars Leonardo DiCaprio in a very, very early role. This is 1995 DiCaprio. This is pre-Titanic Leonardo DiCaprio wow. uh, playing a character named The Kid, who's actually the son of Gene Hackman, who enters the tournament to uh, earn the respect of his father, who's running it. Uh, and th- this movie came to mind because, I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood deals with Westerns uh, in a pretty major way. Like, I-, I-, and I think in a way that, like, if you were going into the movie blind, just knowing it takes place in Hollywood in the 60s, you wouldn't expect it to be as Western-y as it is. Yes. Um, 
But it's a Tarantino movie, and it's a Tarantino movie post Kill Bill, so it has to have westerns in some fashion. Like, it's, I mean, the title also. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, obviously, the title is heavily inspired by Once Upon a Time in the West, and I mean, it's there are so there are so many Once Upon a Time in movies, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in America, Antalya, uh, Mexico, which that was Robert Rodriguez movie actually, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. There you uh, go. So yeah, they're they're good pals. But uh, obvi- obviously, I think this movie is really referencing Once Upon a Time in the West um, with its title. But I, I think it's really interesting to have the Quick and the Dead have this like really early role for Leonardo DiCaprio as this like gunslinger, this really cool Western dude uh, who's like you know probably like eighteen, nineteen when he shot this role, uh, and then have him in Once Upon a Time in the West where he's playing this like heavy on this Western TV show. Which which uh, one? What's he in? Uh, you said Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Where uh, he's playing the heavy on this Western TV show, and he's shooting all these spaghetti westerns and things like that. Uh, and you have like these extended scenes where you're seeing him play this Western bad guy, uh, which he kind of does in this movie. And it's it just kind of like fa- I think it's fa- it would be fascinating to watch them like back to back and see like how like 19 year old DiCaprio handles it versus how um, I have no idea how old Leonardo DiCaprio is now, but I guess in his 40s DiCaprio yeah uh, or whatever handles it too. You know, it's it's you know because they they feel like completely different actors almost like the way Leonardo DiCaprio has evolved over time. Mm-hmm. Um, like he just seems like an, an entirely different person that he was when he made like Titanic and Romeo plus Juliet and that kind of thing. And so I think they'd be a really fascinating double feature to watch together. Uh, and so yeah, The Quick and the Dead is my is my last choice for uh, this. Uh, you may also like segment. There you go. I yeah, think this so, was this was a good segment. I think. I think so. So to recap, uh, mine was uh, The Nice Guys, Barton Fink, and The Quick and the Dead, and Mike, yours were The Dirty Dozen. Um, man from Uncle. The Man from Uncle. And, and uh, for a few dollars more, slash, Less Than the Dust. Right. Yeah. I think it's cool that we both picked a Western towards the end, too. With, uh, yeah. Which I, I think it's just one of those things. Like, Tarantino always like messes around. Like, Inglorious Bastards has Western elements in it, but then with Django and Hateful Eight, obviously those are both kind of Westerns. But then this one, like, I wasn't expecting the Western stuff, and it came through anyway. (laughs) (laughs) He snuck it in there. (laughs) He snuck it in there. So, yeah. Uh, All right. So that is the end of that segment, Mike. And now let's move on into our featured presentation of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the uh, new movie written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. It stars 
Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Margaret Qualley, uh, Emil Hirsch, Timothy Oliphant, Austin Butler, Dakota Fanning, Mike Moe, Kurt Russell, Bruce Dern, Julia Butters, and Al Pacino, among many, many others. This is a huge cast uh, that he was able to assemble for this movie. Most of them have, like, one scene uh, right. <laughs> throughout. But still, huge cast that he was able to assemble. Uh, the IMDb plot synopsis for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood reads... A faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969, Los Angeles. Uh, so, Mike, we've kind of been uh, talking around this movie for a little while now at this point. We've been <laughs> recommending yeah. movies that are sort of uh, related to it, and we've been uh, talking about some of the stuff leading up to it. Uh, what was your overall take on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? My overall take was that, uh, I like I said, I, it started out rocky for me. I, the theater wasn't great. Like, it was just kind of one of those out of the, out, you know, wasn't any fault of the movie uh, yeah. experiences. The theater wasn't great. The sound wasn't great. And I was just, like, mad. I was like, ah, oh, fuck, they're gonna, it's one of these things. <laughs> um, so, like, it took about 20 minutes before I kind of, like, settled in and was like, all right, I just need to let this movie happen and I'm going to experience it. And... Basically, that once that mindset like set in, I loved this movie. I had a blast with it. Um, it's Tarantino at his most Tarantino, which I feel like every movie, every time one of his movies came out, that must have been what everyone said every time. Uh, right. <laughs> it feels like it was just getting more and more uh, stylized in his way, uh, which is great because that's a thing that style that I happen to enjoy. So, like, yes, yes give me more of it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's this kind of just buddy hangout movie, which I wasn't really expecting, which I'm kind of glad, I don't know if glad's the right word, uh, but like, you know, the original marketing and like the r- announcement of it was like, oh, it's Tarantino doing the Manson murders, and it's going to be this weird, grisly thing set in the real world and all this stuff, uh, and I was like, wow, this is, that's what, that was when I was like kind of nervous a little bit, it was like, I don't know, right. it's like a real historical event. Uh, I feel kind of weird about that with Tarantino and his stylization meeting the real world. Uh, but it ends up being just kind of this, like, uh, buddy hangout movie about Leo and Brad Pitt. And, like, there's also this other thing going on in the background, but it's mostly about them <laughs> hanging out. And right. Rick Dalton trying to make his movies and, and his save his career. Um, there is, I think, still something something problematic in some way, and I know you don't like that word. Um, <laughs> but, like, having this movie sort of be about uh, these kind of two aging white men and them not wanting to not wanting to lose their role in the world, even though the world's passed them by and, like, get out of the way kind of thing, um, but they won't let it go. I mean, I don't really know what, you know, there is certainly a take there uh, in that fashion, and that's definitely, I think, a critique that can be leveled at the movie. That said, it doesn't really... Link, the movie itself doesn't confront that kind of thing, um, so I don't think... But, I mean, I don't know. I just wanted to bring it up, because I think it's something that, you know, should be acknowledged that there is f- definitely that aspect there. Like, you know, you okay. can meet this movie with that take. I, I think I see where you're coming from with uh, with that take and where that take could come from. I think it's mostly... Like, that didn't bug me so much. I feel like it's mostly just... Um, it's Tarantino being nostalgic about, like, an era of film that uh, doesn't really exist anymore. Right. Uh, and I think that's really the thing that kind of is pervasive throughout the entire movie. Um, I will say I, I never wanted this movie to end. I, watched, <laughs> I I sat there, and I feel like I just – I was so engrossed by the world that it creates. I, I feel like I could get lost in this movie for hours. Like, if this movie was, like, six hours long, I'd be like, I want more of right. this movie. I'd be okay if, like, this movie just continued running forever. And I just stayed in, my, in this theater for the rest of my life. Uh, and I just I'd be, died. And, and I'd be fine with that. Uh, yeah, I, I really loved 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, and I think, you know, some of the things, when the, when the movie was first announced, uh, I think a lot of the headlines were like, it's Tarantino confronting the Manson murders. But the way Tarantino always talked about it, it, it always sounded like the Manson murders were going to be like a minimal part of the movie. Like they, they, they were going to be part of it for sure. And I think they actually are. They, they hang over the entire movie. But the movie isn't necessarily about that. Um, I, I think the, the concern that people had is that Tarantino would be glorifying Manson in some way and that kind of thing. Uh, and he definitely doesn't do that here. Manson is barely in the movie. Um, right. <laughs> has, yeah. uh, David Harriman appears as Manson for one scene uh, in the movie, and he's never shown again. He's mentioned a couple times, but he's never actually shown again in the movie. And I, I think there's more scenes that were that he shot that were cut out of the film, which apparently there's rumors going around that there's a, a longer cut of the movie that will be coming later, possibly in like uh, a similar thing with the Hatefully Extended thing, like a Netflix extended yeah. seri- series like that. But I, I think this movie... I, I think it's interesting that you say it's the most Tarantino movie ever made or whatever, because I think it is sort of that, um, because it's so much about Tarantino's idiosyncrasies and his obsessions that he's, you know, been dealing with his entire life. But it's also, like, almost the least Tarantino movie ever made uh, in the way that it's like, you know, usually his movies are very plot-driven or they're very um, revenge-driven a lot of the time. They usually have some kind of revenge plot going on. Um, you know, with Kill Bill, it's obviously her quest to get revenge against Bill, and with Death Proof, there's Revenge Against Stuntman Mike, and with The Bastards, it's Revenge Against the Nazis, and with Django, it's Revenge Against the Slave Traders, and all, like, there, yeah. revenge is a big element in his movies, and this movie doesn't really have that, except in a metatextual way towards the end, which we'll talk about later, uh, which I feel like even just saying that is kind of a spoiler for what, <laughs> for what happens <laughs> in the movie, if you're aware that it takes place about the Manson murders. But, you know, so at this, in the same way, I think it's almost the least Tarantino movie ever made. It's so sincere. It's such a sincere movie from Tarantino, and that's not something we see from him very often. Um, yeah. Especially, especially coming after The Hateful Eight, which is a very, very cynical movie. To, to, to kind of do like a whole 180 with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think is really interesting. Um, it's, I, I think it's the most emotional he's been as a filmmaker since Jackie Brown, which is a movie that's uh, severely underrated, I think, in Tarantino's filmography. Um, and it's one of those things like, I, I, I've seen recent takes where people are like, oh, Jackie Brown's Tarantino's best movie. Um, and usually those are people who don't like Tarantino movies that much. <laughs> Right. Uh, I will say, but Jackie Brown's still great. It's not one of my favorite Tarantino movies, but it's still awesome. But I, I think it's interesting that he's kind of working in that mold again with, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and just kind of looking at the relationship between uh, DiCaprio and Pitt in this movie and then kind of having this uh, sort of ethereal presence with uh, with Sharon Tate, as, with Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate kind of throughout the movie. So I think it's awesome. I think it's so different than anything else Tarantino has ever done, while at the same time it's about everything he's always been obsessed with. Right, um, yeah. I think that's where the uh, it's the most Tarantino movie ever uh, thing comes from, for me at least, where it's a movie about the movies that Tarantino wishes he could make now, you know, like kind of thing, like... Right. I, I, I don't know. I feel like maybe Bastards might be the most, like, stylized Tarant, like, the most Tarantino in that sense, where it's, you know, it's got the weird smash cutaways with Samuel Jackson voiceover and, and flashbacks and, reve- you know, all this weird revenge shit going on and exploitation movie. This isn't an exploitation movie, which arguably the other eight movies he's made have been. Um, <laughs> this one's not. So, yeah, I don't know. That is an interesting thing to bring up. You know, it's, it, it simultaneously is the most and least Tarantino thing. And I mean, the attention to detail here is just—it's it, just incredible. Like again, I, I said I would be able to just get lost in this world for hours, and I think the big reason for that is because there's so much like stuff 
where you know, you're just watching it and you're hearing Al Pacino being like, oh, yeah, so I watched Tanner on 35mm the other night. And, like, he's just talking about, you know, they go into severe detail on, like, every movie that Rick Dalton makes. And they talk about, like, there's just offhand references to all these different things that happened in 1969 and 68 and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like, you know, some a lot of it is real stuff that actually happens. Some of it's made up for the movie. But I think it's one of those things where I just want to kind of, like, let this world envelop me because of all the uh, the details and stuff that I can just, like, observe while i'm watching it yeah yeah i think one of the most fun parts for me after the movie like you mentioned earlier i think is that just rabbit hole of like well they say this but what were they ref- they're referencing this which leads you to this guy who made this movie which shows up later as this movie and the other and then like you just yes. go down this never-ending branch tree thing like you just get lost in this world of 1969 Hollywood and how everything's connected back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and this fictional fucking character that I was like, is this guy real? Was this a real dude? Like, I got really lost for a while. I was like, because there's so much real stuff populating this movie where I was like, I think this might have been real for a second. Like, I got confused. Right. And I mean, even like, you know, every director that he works with is like a real director, um, like Sam Watermaker, like I mentioned in Lancer, uh, or uh, when he he leaves to go make Spaghetti Westerns, um, Pacino's on the phone. He's like, you're going to go work with Sergio Corbucci. And it's like, who's Sergio? Corbucci. He's like, he's the second best director of Italian pictures in, in all of Italy or whatever. And Sergio Corbucci was the guy who directed Django, the spaghetti western Django, which of course Tarantino uh, lifted from for Django Unchained. Right. Um, so it's all it's all connected in, in these ways <laughs> uh, and that kind of thing. And so, you know, there's that. And, you know, when you go to Lancer, uh, Timothy Alphon is playing James Stacy, who, again, I went to like, a research rabbit hole for that. And James Stacy was actually in a motorcycle accident like three years after this movie comes out. He lost his leg and his arm um, and, then event- and then eventually got back into acting, um, wow. which is really interesting. But uh, there's like, again, there's so there's so much history in just like the details of this movie, uh, yeah. which is just incredible to kind of go through um as far as the performances i mean dicaprio and pitt they're both stellar in this movie i think they're like really incredible together especially i think dicaprio is incredible in this movie he's like yeah. he's so good um and i really i really like the uh, the dichotomy between those two guys where i don't know like brad pitt seems just so like effortlessly cool in the movie yeah. um and and i love that, that like the contrast that with rick dalton who um only when he's acting, he can seem that cool. But like, and when he's like off camera, he's just like the stammering kind of like insecure dude. Yeah. <laughs> dude. Uh, and but like he's when he's on camera, and he's acting. He's great. He's like super cool, and he's like you know can handle himself for the most part. Um, and we'll get to some some of that later. But I, I love that they're like their whole relationship and that dichotomy between the two of those guys. Yeah, Brad Pitt is the actual James Dean character, and Leo is the James Dean only on screen kind of thing. And there's even a, you know a very prominent James Dean mural featured in the movie too. Um, yes, but yeah, I, I did love that. And and there's just he just looks so cool driving fucking a cool. Is he, what's sorry, I forget what Cadillac he's driving. Is it a Coupe de Ville? I don't know. Something like he's, that. Yeah, yeah, he's driving just this really fucking cool man like he's just this hippie stoner dude even though not really but you know what i mean it's just so suave he's just a handsome boy that's all <laughs> yeah, exactly and hot i mean take. then you got brad pitt is hot first <laughs> what you, heard, you heard it first here folks yeah you heard it here first uh and then there's margot robbie as sharon, as sharon tate who uh, i also think is really great in this movie before the movie came out i heard there was some criticism that like she doesn't have enough to do in the movie or that kind of thing but i, th- I think the movie actually handles her really well um, because if you know history, Sharon Tate dies in the Manson murders. That's like what happened. <laughs> what? In real life. That happened. I, should, in real I shouldn't life. joke about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that that's what happened in real life. And this this movie is sort of reclaiming Sharon Tate in a weird way. Like I, I think she's somebody who has been 
defined by that tragic death in the Manson murders, where like most people, if they know the name Sharon Tate, they only know her as a victim of Charles Manson and the Manson family. Right. Um, most people, I think, wouldn't be able to name a Sharon Tate movie that she was in, because she was only in a few, and none of them are like huge cultural hits anymore. You know, there was like yeah. Valley of the Dolls and The Wrecking Crew, and there's a sequence in this movie where you watch Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate watching the real Sharon Tate in The Wrecking Crew, uh, and it's incredible. It's, it's one of those things, and I think Margot Robbie really captures uh, Sharon Tate really well. I think the way this movie kind of just allows us to watch Sharon Tate living her life uh, for like a day... Yeah. Um, not not actually having to like worry about anything, not having like a real plot in the movie. I think that really works. Yeah, that was the the like when that started happening. When we got to that sequence where it's uh, just that like one day, I was kind of like, okay, I see what happened with the miscommunication between what everyone what I thought this movie was going to be and like my trepidation about it, uh, yeah. and what this movie actually is. Uh, it was like okay, I you know I felt satisfied by. My hesitations were, like, you know, handled or whatever. Uh, Tarantino, he sedated me in some way. That's not the right way to put that, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Where uh, I did see somewhere, I I don't remember who, if it was Matt Singer or some, you know, some article uh, pointing out uh, that scene where when Robbie goes to watch The Wrecking Crew, it's the only time the in-movie actor isn't digitally imposed into the film. Right. There's a lot of TV shows and movies where we see, like, Leonardo DiCaprio put into the scene. Uh, that is, I think, very on purpose and deliberate and important to what the point yes. of the movie is. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think Margot Robbie is really great in the role. Uh, and really, the whole ensemble cast is just incredible. I mean, again, you got, like, Kurt Russell just popping up for a scene. you got Al Pacino popping in for two scenes. you got... Uh, Mike Moe as Bruce Lee, I thought was incredible uh, in, in this movie. Again, he only has, like, one scene in the movie, but he's... Uh, he is great. I know there's been some controversy around that scene, um, but I, I think it really works in the movie, and we'll talk about uh, that in spoilers, I think. But yeah, I, I will say, I've seen the movie twice. I was unsure about how I felt about the ending of the movie the first time I watched it. Not necessarily, like, the actual, like, final shot of the movie. Like, I think the actual, like, sentiment of, the, of what the ending was going for, like, stuck with me, but I think the way it went about it was I, something I had, like, an issue with. Um, yeah. And I've, I've, I have since decided that it works, but that, that one aspect still feels a little bit out of place, and we really can't get into that without going into spoilers. So unless you have anything else you want to say about the movie before we move on to spoilers, Mike, uh, then we should just do that. So what do you think? No, I think we can move on to spoilers. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is uh, very good if you like Tarantino things. I don't know. There was that whole story with the guy uh, that was on the listener to Slash Filmcast that didn't know any of the history, the like real-world history behind the Manson murders and anything what happened, and was right. totally blown away and like hated this movie until he <laughs> learned that it was based partly in real life and stuff, and was cra- that's crazy. And, I, and that will be one sort of criticism, I guess, um, for me for this movie, actually, uh, now that I think about it, is that it does rely a lot on the viewer having outside knowledge of that. Of the Mindson murders and stuff. And it is, like, you know, a huge cultural, pop culture, uh, like, thing. I feel like most people in general would know. But, like, there's lingering shots on the, the street signs and, like, you know, musical stings when they pull up the house number. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know. What it, like, I knew what it was referencing, but I don't know what the specifics of stuff is. Um, yeah. So, like, if you somehow don't know that any of that, uh, <laughs> that is a weird <laughs> thing to experience, I guess. I guess so. And that's, I mean, I've seen that on the internet too, where people just didn't know about the Manson murders or didn't know who Sharon Tate was. I, yeah. I could see people not knowing who Sharon Tate was, but I feel like you would have to know who Charles Manson is. Like, I, I feel like, like everybody has, like, I, I think everybody knows who Charles Manson is, but apparently the internet has proven me wrong. Like, Some people don't, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> apparently. And I think that's, I, I don't think it's really a problem with the movie. I think it's just a problem with, like, 
you if you're watching <laughs> if you're watching it and you're not the least bit aware of who Charles like it's just it's such a generation defining event it's like basically signals the end of the 60s like the end of the hippie era right. uh, and that kind of thing and I, I, it just feels like like it's just it's such a huge part of American history in the 20th century it's like how do you not know who Charles Manson is yeah um but maybe that's me. Maybe that feels like I don't know. Maybe that's like gatekeepery elitism or whatever. Like, which I don't think it is. But I think. But if maybe some, I don't know. If, I, I don't know. But anyway, uh, I, I think this movie is best enjoyed if you know who Charles Manson <laughs> are. At least <laughs> read <laughs> a book that, for once and then watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Do like a quick Google search. <laughs> Yeah. Um, really, like you need to have like at least the context of knowing who they are. It does linger on like you know the street sign of Cielo Drive and stuff, but like you know that's just like if you don't know all the details, but you know who Charles Manson is, like you'll see that and be like, oh, that must be the street where they lived. Like that's right. Context. There's context. Know, con- context clues. Context clues. Uh, all right, let's move on to the spoilers, Mike. For Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, starting right now. All right, spoilers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, starting right now. So uh, let's talk about the ending of the movie, Mike. Uh, yes. And then we'll kind of talk about some of the other kind of major points. Um, but this movie uh, diverts from history in a pretty major way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, the, in the same way that Glorious Bastards does, uh, which I think is the closest comparison um, that you can make. And in Glorious Bastards, obviously in real life, Hitler didn't get uh, shot and burned alive in a movie theater. Um, <laughs> even, even though that's the ending that we all wish could have happened, which is the idea <laughs> behind Glorious Bastards. Uh, here, the ending leaves Sharon Tate alive as the Manson family gets killed by Rick and Cliff instead. And so that, that whole final sequence is happening where it's like, you know, you, you see the, uh, the Manson family kind of come up, it's Tex and you, um, uh, Mikey Madison is playing Sadie, uh, who, uh, Mikey Madison is on, um, Better Things on FX. I was like kind of excited to see her. Um, she plays Pamela Adlon's daughter in the, in that show. And it's just very weird to see her in this kind of role where she was like, you know, kind of maniacal, um, yeah, <laughs> in that whole scene. But yeah, she's the one who um, has the idea to kill uh, Rick Dalton and whoever's in Rick Dalton's house, basically. Uh, and she has like that one big monologue, which is going "man" all the yeah. time, which is great. Which is great. Uh, <laughs> um, and and but, Stranger Things season three's own Maya Hawk is in it for that one scene. Oh yeah, is she the one who um, drives off? Is she the one who leaves? Yeah, <laughs> the one yes. that runs away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, which is pretty cool. And also, she's Uma Thurman's daughter, so there's a Tarantino connection there too. Because obviously, right. Uma Thurman was. In Kill Bill and Pulp Fiction. Actually, there's a lot of, like, somebody pointed this out, but there's a lot of um, characters in minor roles who are, like, the children of very famous people in Hollywood uh, in this movie. And it seems like a very deliberate thing on Tarantino's part, almost. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's po- A, it's populated with, like, a lot of, like, modern TV stars, yeah. uh, too. Like, like, Lena Dunham is in this movie. Uh, for <laughs> She's one of the Manson family. And, like, uh, Timothy Oliphant, obviously, is in this. Luke Perry is in here, yeah. uh, too. Um, but then you have, like, uh, Maya Hawke, who's Uma Thurman's daughter, and you have... Um, Margaret Qualley, who I didn't realize is Andy McDowell's daughter, which, what? yeah, completely, yeah, you didn't realize that either, I'm guessing. But, That's uh, crazy. <laughs> blew my mind. Uh, Harley Quinn Smith also, Kevin Smith's daughter, is um, in this movie too, as one of the, as one of the Manson family too. Wow. Um, and it almost seems like a deliberate commentary from Tarantino about, like, Hollywood and sort of, like, the nepotism aspects of it, or it might yeah. just be a coincidence, but... I mean, uh, <laughs> the fact that they're mostly the Manson family <laughs> is creepy. <laughs> yeah. I have to I mean, saying something. Yeah, a little odd. But uh, anyway, uh, all that said, you know, the, they have this uh, this kind of big moment where the Manson family kind of pulls up on Stilo Drive, and it seems like they're about to go over to uh, the house with um, or with uh, Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring. Uh, Polanski is out. 
uh, he's away in Europe like he was in real life, and it's like it seems like it's about to happen. Uh, and they even say, like, okay, Charlie wants us to go in there because that's why you have the scene with Charles Manson earlier in the movie where he pops up at the house because he wants to find um, the dude from the Beach Boys, I want to say, uh, Dennis Wilson. Uh, I don't remember. I think it's the other guy, but he also mentions Dennis Wilson yeah. at one point in that, in that scene. But anyway, so he knows that's the house where they were, and like he, that's the house where he used to go to, and then he sees Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring. Uh, and then he leaves, and then later on that, that scene kind of comes up with them, and they're about to go into the house, but uh, Rick Dalton like hears their car outside, and, gets, and he's very drunk and gets annoyed, and he like goes out and yells at them. Uh, and so they, they turn around, and they're about to leave, and then Sadie has the idea to kill Rick Dalton instead. And they're all like gung-ho about it, and they're like, yeah, let's do that! And so they go into uh, Rick Dalton's house, they break in, and uh, that's when they meet uh, Cliff, who is uh, super high at the, yeah. t- <laughs> at the time. Yeah, acid. On acid, uh, which was pretty great, and that's, that's a very funny moment where um, he sees Tex and he's like, "Hey, I know you. Your name was uh, something stupid, or it was like <laughs> it's like Rex or something." And it's like, and it's like "Just shoot him, Tex." And like, Tex. <laughs> like, uh, it was pretty great, and then um, and then there's this big violent outburst with uh, the dog attacking the um, <laughs> the Manson family. Uh, they attack Tex Scratch, and uh, Brad Pitt um, like just starts slamming uh, Mikey Madison's head against the counter and like all that stuff, and uh, and then eventually, like, uh, the only one left is Mikey Madison, Sadie, who uh running around screaming on blood, just wielding a knife. And then she, like, crashes through the glass uh, and lands in Rick Dalton's pool, and she's shooting her gun. And, like, he, like, eventually uses the flamethrower from the 14 Fists of McCluskey. Right. Uh, and <laughs> which was which was a pretty great reveal. Also, like, that got, that got like, you know, a huge reaction in my crowd both times I saw. I was like, holy shit, it's the flamethrower. Yeah. Uh, and he burns her alive. And then basically, so they kill the Manson family before they get the chance to kill Sharon Tate. And then Cliff goes off to the hospital, Rick um, is outside, and he meets Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate for the first time. And then the movie ends. The movie ends with that. And I, I really love that final shot, where it's like, you know, Rick going into uh, Sharon Tate's house, and it kind of just lingers there for a second, and then the title comes up, and it says, Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood. And it really emphasizes the idea that this is a fantasy version of the events that happened in real life. You know, right. The idea that it's like, cause you know, the once upon a time, obviously that's like the traditional fairy tale kind of opening. And so I think that the idea is that, you know, Tarantino is no, knows he's playing around with, you know, obviously he knows he's playing around with, with reality. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the, the way that that happens and like transpires. It's like this weird, like kind of fantasy ending that get, kind of gives Sharon Tate this like new purpose in life, uh, or like kind of reclaims her in a weird way. Um, but also kind of, emphasizes the idea that Rick Dalton isn't completely useless. I mean, you know, the, like, yeah. this, this entire movie, Rick Dalton has been like, you know, struggling with his place in the world. And I think that final segment, um, kind of emphasizes the idea that like every person makes a difference. Uh, like just, just by being there, like Rick Dalton prevented the murder of Sharon Tate and, uh, JC bring and everybody else in that house. Right. Um, and I think that's a really interesting way for this to go about it. That said, I think the ultraviolence, which is something I usually love in Tarantino movies, um, it fe- it feels it just feels like this movie didn't need it, you know. <laughs> and yeah. that's where I'm coming from with that. Yeah, I was very nervous uh, in the scene when the you know Manson family pull up for the first time and they're like sitting there looking at at the gate to uh, Sharon Tate's house and stuff. I was nervous what was going to happen is they were going to go in and then Cliff and Rick were going to, like, break in and save the day, like, kind of thing. Right. And I was like, oh, we definitely don't need 
like these two old white guys to save this woman. Like we don't need that story to happen from Tarantino. And then it it doesn't happen that way. So I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like I was so scared that was going to be the way they like subvert reality or whatever, play around with that. But having yeah. them decide like, no, this guy's a bigger asshole. We got to kill him instead. <laughs> uh, I thought was great. So I liked the way that they, that uh, Tarantino subverts that. Um, but it did feel gratuitous in some way like if there's with the ultra violence in that scene especially uh when cliff is bashing the the face against like every hard surface in the house and we get close-ups <laughs> yeah. of it hitting the corner of the mantle and like the nose and the face caving in and like all this stuff right. you know which typically you know we like we, we like uh, craig zoller movies that have that um you yes. know like we mentioned earlier oh man there's the one moment in dread cost concrete where like oh. jennifer carpenter's hand blows up it's insane yeah, that's uh, amazing but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, i will i did like those parts uh, which is probably part of the problem but anyway uh, um, <laughs> in this movie it was so weird and, and it felt like it was because the previous two hour two 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 and a half hours were so like normal like, it was just guys yeah. hanging out and driving around in cars and stuff. And, uh, and then it's not. And then suddenly it becomes a Tarantino movie in this last 15 minutes. Um, but, but also, like, at some point or on some level, like, if there's anyone we can do that to... It's the Manson, it's the Manson family? family. Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's the same way with Inglorious Bastards. It's like, yeah, we can do that to Hitler. We can do that to the Nazis. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, uh, exactly. So it's like, yeah, we, and the Manson family, kind of the same deal. But it feels it just feels out of place, and but that's kind of the point where the movie kind of you know the the curtains lifted or whatever, and we're like, haha, it's been a fairy tale the whole time uh, in some <laughs> weird way. Uh, but I don't know, it was still effective. I think what it pulls off in the story is effective. Uh, it's just the way it goes about it is like maybe not the best version of that. Um, yeah, if it, if it was like the exact same but like twenty five percent less violence, I, yeah. I probably would have like this would be like a full on perfect movie to me. Yeah, uh, I agree. <laughs> uh, it just it, it it felt a little gratuitous, which is weird. again I usually love all the Tarantino ultra violence, and honestly, like you know he has a reputation for being a very violent filmmaker, and, and he has movies that are definitely violent, like Kill Bill uh, with the crazy eighty eight fight and everything like that. Um, but I, I feel like his movies are less violent than people act as if they are, like, especially rewatching them recently. Like, for example, I think one of the scenes everybody points to was in Reservoir Dogs, the, uh, the ear cutting scene stuck in the middle of you. Yeah. Um, you don't, you don't see him cut the ear off. That's, it happens off screen. All right. right. In that, in you that You see the you aftermath. Just, yeah. You see the aftermath and you hear his screaming and that's, and it's, a, there's a lot of stuff like that in his movies. Uh, and there's definitely like, you know, ultra violence for sure. But I feel like it's not nearly as much as people like to believe there is. Even in, like, Death Proof, um, you know, there's, like, one big scene of violence halfway through the movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then there's the very end of the movie where they all beat up Kurt Russell. And that's, like, that's right. basically it, right? <laughs> Which is, like, basically his, like, exploitation. Like, you know, if, if there was going to be a Tarantino movie that had a lot of violence in it, like, Death Proof would be it, you know? <laughs> it's really ironic that, <laughs> that Death Proof would be that movie, but Death Proof is... 98% people talking at a table and then 2% yes. uh, car crashes. <laughs> that's basically exactly. it. Um, and I love that movie. Let me, let's talk about Death... Let's do Death Proof episode, man. <laughs> let's just do a mini Death Proof episode inside our episode, <laughs> yes. But yeah, but anyway, I, I did like... I, I love the ending of this movie, I will say. Like, I love where it ends up and I, I really love just the idea that it was able to, like, you know, I, I, I just like the idea that, like, you know, the Manson family is completely, like, incapacitated by the time, like, they don't even get to Sharon Tate's house. They don't, right. even, they don't even get inside. Like, as far as this movie's version of Sharon Tate is concerned, this is just, like, a weird thing that happened to her neighbor. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is, like, I think really fascinating to uh, to go with. And I think the setup to that scene is really effective. Uh, there's stuff throughout the movie that kind of leads into it, um, especially the Bruce Lee scene. I think the Bruce Lee scene is actually very key to what's going on in the end of that yeah. movie. Which So the Bruce Lee scene, um, which has... Created some controversy online. Some people are upset with this movie's depiction of Bruce Lee, uh, including Bruce Lee's daughter Shannon Lee, I believe. Yes. Um, but there are others who think who are saying, "Like this is it's kind of how Bruce Lee was." This is like, <laughs> so he, <laughs> he was he was kind of this arrogant, like overconfident dude, um, and he was awesome. Like like nobody's denying that Bruce Lee is awesome, and I think Tarantino believes that Bruce Lee is awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I, I and I think Bruce Lee comes off as awesome in this movie. Like, but I think it also that scene also establishes the idea that Brad Pitt is actually pretty good in a fight if he can, like, kind of hold his own against Bruce Lee. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so when that scene comes up at the end with uh, the Manson family, A, it's pretty awesome that Brad Pitt has his dog to tra- train to just attack people. Um, right. Which between, which between this and John Wick 3, it's a really good year for murder dogs. Oh, it's <laughs> a great year for, yeah, for attack <laughs> dogs. Movies. Um, but then, yeah, but then Brad Pitt is just, like, beating the shit out of people, and it's like, all right, even though, like, like the first time I watched it, I was like, I don't know if I believe that Brad Pitt, high off his ass, um, can just destroy these people immediately. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, okay, yeah, I can see it. Because uh, the first time I watched it, actually, I thought the Bruce Lee scene was like a fantasy that Brad Pitt was having. Which, and then the second time I watched it, I, re- I think I, I, I'm more on like I think it's a flashback. It's, it's a flashback. Thing. Yeah. Yes. But the first time I watched it, I thought it was a fantasy. And then the second time, I realized that they referenced the idea that they were on the set of the Green Hornet um, at some point. So it's it's actually flashing back to what happened then. Yeah, but that first time I watched it, I thought it was like a fantasy sequence of like Brad Pitt daydreaming about like what would have happened on the set if, <laughs> if, he, if, he, if he had gone. Which, uh, we should talk about that and we should also talk about the fact that that flashes back, there's a flashback within that flashback where Kurt Russell kind of establishes that um, Brad Pitt theoretically killed his wife yeah. um, on a boat, which uh, that, that whole sequence seems to be referencing Natalie Wood. Whoa. I didn't they, even think of that. His wife's name is Natalie, and that's in that. In that I totally missed that. Um, I would have blamed the I, audio in the theater. <laughs> yeah. definitely not. It's definitely not why. But that, that that I think that's just like an, an extra a detail to it. It's not like supposed. To, I don't think it's supposed to be Natalie Wood. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's interesting. It doesn't it doesn't really answer the question one way or the other if Brad Pitt actually did kill his wife or not. You know the way the way that flashback is structured. You have his wife on the boat with him. Uh, nagging him like she's like just kind of like just yelling and like you know just be, like you know telling him what a piece of shit he is and he has a harpoon in his hand yeah um, but the boat's also very rocky like it's it's rocking around back and forth and like he's like just acting annoyed um, but like it cuts away before anything actually happens and he like um, maybe looks at the camera and then the, right. then it cuts away yeah it cuts away before anything actually happens so uh, you know Rick doesn't believe that. Uh, Cliff killed his wife, or did, or purposely killed his wife, I should say. But uh, Kurt Russell does, and so does Kurt Russell's wife, who's played by Zoe Bell, by the way, which I was very excited to see. Which was great. Uh, yes, <laughs> I just I get really happy whenever I see Zoe Bell in a Tarantino movie. That's just yeah. very nice. But yeah, so there's that that whole kind of um, sequence within the Bruce Lee sequence, and uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I think. Like, so, I mean, I guess, do you think that Brad Pitt killed his wife in the world of this movie? And if he did, how does that color um, the rest of the movie for you? You know, that's that's a tough question. I don't really know if I ever really engaged with the movie that way, and I probably should have, because it definitely, I felt that he killed his wife uh, in that scene. When, when you watched that scene, you thought he did? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, uh, they're having the argument, Leo and Kurt Russell, and he's like, you don't believe that shit, do you? And then they flash back to that, and, uh, you know, he so, it seems like right at the end of that 
Pitt looks at the camera, and then we cut back to Leo and Kurt Russell. And Leo's like, well, okay, whatever. And he sits down on the couch, and it seems like maybe he did kill his I think he might have killed his wife. And then they come, they call him a wife killer a couple of times later in the movie. But I don't, I feel like, I don't know. I didn't really consider what that means for him to be the hero, even though by the end of, you know, by the end of the movie, he's the one that kills most of the Manson family guys. So, like, he's basically the hero or, like, the knight character of a fairy tale, right? Um, and, and he's bad, maybe. Although, like, you know, he has some kind of weird morals because he refuses to have sex with the... Uh, uh, with Margaret Qualley because she's not 18. Yeah, or can't prove it at least or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, like, I don't know. It's very it's very strange. He's definitely a, a gray character, at least, if you think he killed his wife. Yeah, and in that, in that scene with Margaret Qualley, he even says, like, um, you know, they've been trying to get me in... They, they've been trying to get me in prison for years. I'm not going to prison because of you. Yeah. Uh, that type of thing. Uh, so it's it's deliberately left ambiguous about whether whether it actually whether he actually did or not. Uh, I, I would say I don't think he did. Um, partially because I'm so... I, I feel like Rick and Cliff are such good friends, and I don't want to destroy that friendship in any way. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. uh, but also, I think I'm not sure if Rick would still be friends with him if he actually killed his wife. Uh, but maybe he would be, because he needs Cliff for everything in his life. Um, yeah. But it it might be one of those things that, that Rick is so, like naive, that Rick that that's he's the only one Rick can trick. Into believing it that uh, he maybe. didn't do it, you know what I mean? I don't like not. I don't know. I don't know. This is one way I could see that happening because Rick is maybe. definitely portrayed to be like this kind of uh, can't do anything on his own kind of guy, right? Um, but yeah, so there is that whole that whole aspect of Brad Pitt's character that um, is kind of just on, under the surface throughout the movie. Um, so, and I, I think it's I, I think it's meant to establish the idea that he has the potential for violence yeah. um, throughout, which he which he demonstrates a couple of times. He uh, like when they're at the Spawn Ranch, he punches out that one dude who uh, slashes his tire, and then of course there's a whole sequence uh, where they kill all the Manson family, uh, <laughs> <laughs> where they destroy them. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there is all of that. But uh, I, I think it's you know interesting that like Cliff's entire life is basically revolving around Rick at this point, and then when at the end of the movie when they're kind of going their separate ways, like Rick can't afford to keep him on anymore, and so Cliff needs to find like a new line of work, and they mention in Kurt Russell as the narrator mentions that, like, you know, Cliff has no idea what he's going to do at this point. He has yeah. zero idea of what his life's going to be like from this point forward. Um, but then, anyway, that that whole sequence, that whole establishment of the wife thing, uh, leads into the Bruce Lee scene, which has Mike Moe as Bruce Lee, and it's all done in one take, by the way, which was awesome. It was, yeah. like, just really, really cool. Um, where Bruce Lee's just kind of, like, showboating on the set of the Green Hornet, and he's just, like, talking about um, you know, how much he respects Cassius Clay and how much he likes the sport of boxing because it's two people just fighting at each other. And, uh, and then somebody asks him, like, hey, do you think you'd be Cassius Clay in a fight? And Bruce Lee says, yes, I would be Cassius Clay <laughs> in a right. fight. Uh, and then Brad Pitt laughs and uh, Bruce Lee starts to uh, get agitated and they kind of go back and forth a little bit and uh, they get into a fight. Uh, and, I lo- like, you know, the first thing that happens in the fight is Bruce Lee knocks Brad Pitt on his ass. Right. Um, which was pretty great. And then... Um, there's one point where Bruce Lee charges at him. Brad Pitt uh, kind of catches his weight and swings him into a car. <laughs> um, uh, and that that's what kind of, like, sets things off. And that's when Zoe Bell comes in and uh, is hilarious in her small role. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, but I think that, that sequence does establish that uh, Brad Pitt, like, hey, he was able to hold his own against Bruce Lee. I think if that scene had gone on for, like, another 30 seconds after Zoe Bell had, like, if Zoe Bell hadn't showed up for another 30 seconds, I think if it had gone on, Bruce Lee would have kicked Brad Pitt's ass. Yeah. Um, the way that sequence was going. Like, I, th- I think he was just kind of, me- I-, I think 
the way this movie portrays Bruce Lee, he's kind of messing around a little bit. He's just backstage. He's kind of underestimating Brad Pitt's prowess because he thinks he's just some dumb stunt guy. Right. Um, and so he's kind of going easy on him a little bit. But if, I think if they had gone like another 30 seconds, Brad, Bruce Lee would have kicked Cliff Booth's ass. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of how I saw the scene happening. Um, but so when all the uh, the takes on Bruce Lee uh, in this movie came out, I was like, oh, I don't know. I think that, I, like, to me it mostly works. Anything else? Uh, how about the, uh, the scene with uh, with Rick and the uh, the young actress uh, played by Julia Butters on the uh, on the set of Lancer? Oh, my God. Uh, That's, like, the most <laughs> emotional, powerful scene in, in, in the whole movie. Uh, right? It's so good. It's incredible. Uh, where he, he gets uh, he gets put in his makeup, you know, he, in his land. <laughs> his, I love the whole, like, we want to make you look like a hell's angel, but look how, boy. He's like, what the fuck? Uh, I love that whole yeah. thing. Um, so he's in his makeup, whatever, and he can't eat lunch. So he decides, he sits down and he's talking to this actress. Uh, he's going to read his book, and he's reading like some some dime novel, some dime store novel, like Western yeah. thing. And she's, I forget what she's reading. She's uh, reading an auto, uh, a biography about Walt Disney. Yeah, um. exactly. Uh, and like how he's an inspiration and all this stuff. And she's like yes. the most philosophical eight year old ever. And uh, she, amazing. she felt very much. Yeah, she felt like uh, if Quentin Tarantino was eight years old, that's probably what wow. he was like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, and <laughs> eventually reduces Rick to tears. Um, yes. but like in a supportive way, like he just needed to cry, and she's like, "Yeah, it's okay, man. Like, yeah, it's fine." Right. Yeah, like a therapy like, session. Talking, <laughs> yeah, like he's he's talking about the plot of the book that he's reading, and it's about this uh, cowboy who's getting older, and he doesn't really uh, understand his place in the world anymore, and it's very reflective on what Rick is going through right now, and it's you know, and he starts crying and everything. Um, but yeah, that that whole scene with them is great, and then I mean, everything with him on the set of Lancer, I just loved oh so God. much, especially when they're actually just like just showing like scenes from Lancer with Rick in them, and they're actually yeah. they're shooting it like a real movie. They're shooting it as if it's a real western with like you know Leonardo DiCaprio and Timothy Oliphant. Uh, but then every once in a while, like Rick will like forget his line. You'll hear somebody shouting off screen. Be, yeah. Be like, like this is the line. Like you got to, and like he'll be like shouting and like, okay, do it again, do it again. And like the camera will like reset. Oh, over I love it's, that. Yeah, it's great. It's so good. My boy Scoot uh, McNary's in it for a scene to just yes. die. <laughs> yes. Great. Yeah, Scoot McNary was there. Yeah, and that's that. That whole sequence is awesome. And then that's that's when um, Rick like forgets his line, like, and he's continually forgetting his line. And then I think the funniest moment in the movie is when he's going back to the trailer. Yeah. Um, and he's just yell, and he's just freaking out and yelling at himself and like like giving himself a bunch of shit for getting like I think he drank like eight uh, whatever drinks the night before. And he's like, yeah. you stopped at four. He had to drink eight. And like you know, like, all right, this is it. Like from from now on, no more drinking. Cut to him like taking a drink out of a flask. And he's like, God damn it! And like, yeah. like, <laughs> he like tricked himself. Yes, exactly. Uh, but then as soon as he does that whole freak out and he's done, you cut back to him out in the set of Lancer. Uh, and he delivers, like, the best take of the entire day and, like, you know, the best performance ever. And, like, everybody's just so impressed with him. And, like, you know, the the girl uh, was, like, thrown on the floor. And she's like, oh, I have elbow pads. Like, this is great. Like, we got this. And, like, yeah. and, then, she said, and then she says to him, like, that is the best acting I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, and it, like, affects him so deeply. And he's just, like, crying on the thing. Like, Rick fucking Dalton. And yeah. uh, I, I think it does a great job of showing, like, the, the amount of emotions that an actor can feel in like a given day where it's like, you know, you're not, you're not doing great. You're doing really shitty work. Uh, but then you have like that one take that you fucking crush it. And it, like, you're on a high for like the rest of the day kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was awesome. Like, I think it like portrays that really well. Yeah. Yeah. I really loved that. Uh, the, especially the scene when, uh, I really loved the like payoff too. Also, because we see him rehearsing way earlier in the movie when he's like, oh, go, running through lines, and he's like, oh, get, line up the drinks, I got company. 
And then right. it, then that that line happens in the scene, and I was like, oh shit, that's the thing he was re- like, uh, that was cool. Because yes. <laughs> yeah. they never say what he's rehearsing for. They just like he's running through lines way earlier in yeah. the movie. Um, but yeah, I loved that 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 payoff when he's like Rick fucking Dalton, like he's so right. proud of himself, and and yes. he's crying, and everyone's like, yeah, good job, man. Like you know, I, I did really like that. That was cool. And um, the camera reset. I don't know why. I just I think just a moving camera is fucking cool. No matter yeah, what, so like the ca- the camera like doing the whole thing, and then Rick forgets his lines, and he's like, "All right, back to one. We're gonna do it again." And the camera swivels back around, and then we just do the whole scene again. <laughs> yes, it's great. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, and it's the kind of stuff that Tarantino loves, which I, th- I think that that really comes through in this movie. Is that Tarantino has just such a deep love for this era of uh, movies and TV and like that era of the 1960s and uh, the actors and the directors of that period. And like everything about that comes through uh, when you're watching Lancer and when you're watching everything in this movie, like it just, again, there's just so much detail into everything, like everything in the movie, like every movie that Rick Dalton makes, there's like a poster with like, that has like, you know, the actors who would have been in in that movie in 1968 or whatever. And like, you know, there's the, the one spaghetti Western that's directed by Antonio Margareti, um, (laughs) who was, who was a real director of Spaghetti Westerns, but is also a reference to Inglorious Bastards, which is the name that uh, Eli Roth uses as uh, his fake Italian name in that movie. Right. Um, which was pretty great to, to, to see that. There's a couple of like Tarantino Easter eggs throughout the movie, which I appreciated uh, yeah. as well. What I really want, though, honestly, is just Mystery Science Theater 3000, but with Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, because there's an extended sequence where we watch Rick Dalton's episode of FBI that he's in, and it's yes. just this, the us watching the screen, like watching the TV screen with the two of them talking. We're like, oh yeah, good, good jump. Oh, I know that guy. Yeah. Like they're just like talking about <laughs> like yes. the episode, and it's amazing. It's like two minutes yeah, it's, long. And it's so great. It's so much fun. Like it's just like ah, oh, that guy's an asshole and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's great. Uh, and I'm hoping they do like the DVD commentary for this movie in exactly the same way. Oh, it's uh, so good. <laughs> Like, if they do it in character as Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, and they're just, like, saying, like, benign things, like, oh, yeah, yeah that was cool. It's like, uh, oh, did you shoot that up in Pasadena? Okay, yeah, cool. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's so good. Uh, and speaking of that episode of FBI, I mean, that's that's an actual real episode of FBI um, that they digitally inserted Rick Dalton into. Uh, the role originally in that episode was played by Burt Reynolds. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> who, Hashtag who layers. Was yeah, who was supposed to be in this movie, actually, um, in two levels? Because uh, Burr Reynolds, before he died, was cast as George Spahn, which is the role that Bruce Dern ends up playing in the movie. And that would have been like kind of like a cool role for him to see Burr Reynolds play. Um, but uh, in addition to that, James Marsden was actually cast to play a young Burr Reynolds. Um, wow. I guess in probably one of, the, in one of the party scenes or something, but he was ultimately cut from the movie. Uh, there's a couple of actors, actually, who uh, were cut from the movie, like James Marsden and uh, Tim Roth was supposed to be in the movie, too. I um, love his credit that said, cut from movie. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Roth. Parentheses cut. Uh, well, it was, it, in, the, in the credits, they like organize it by like, and this is the Manson family characters, and then there's a, a, one that just says the gang, and it's all the people who are in other Tarantino movies. Yeah, I like that. that have, yeah, so it's like Kurt Russell and Zoe Bell, Tim Roth, parentheses cut, Michael Madsen, who has like a bit in the beginning of the movie uh, yeah. on, on Downey Law, which is really cool to see. But yeah, so there are actors who um, uh, will probably show up in the longer cut of the movie if it actually happens when they do like the Netflix extended version or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there, the uh, the FBI episode was a, an, an old Burt Reynolds episode of FBI, which is pretty cool. Uh, in addition to that, I mean, uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is um, when Timothy Oliphant comes up to Rick Dalton and he's saying to him, like, hey, so I gotta ask you something. Is it true that you almost got the Steve McQueen part in The Great Escape? <laughs> uh, and, then, and then it cuts away to The Great Escape, but they take out Steve McQueen and they put in 
Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton in the Steve McQueen role. And I was like, holy shit, this is, am-. like, I was amazed <laughs> that they were doing that. Yeah. Because, uh, I, I mean, I love The Great Escape. I've seen that movie probably two or three times. Um, and, you know, see, like, that Steve McQueen role, it's one of those things that's so iconic. Like, I can't picture anyone else in the Steve McQueen role. But then once you put DiCaprio in there, I'm like, man. Like what? If, what would this movie look like if like DiCaprio was there as like the Steve, yeah. the Steve McQueen part? Which is something I think about all the time. It's one of those things where it's like you know you hear about these like stories about like actors who almost got this role as opposed to this other actor who made the role iconic. Like Tom Selleck could have played Indiana Jones and right. that kind of thing, right? Like that's the thing that almost happens. Uh, and so you think about it, like what would Raiders of the Lost Ark look like with like Tom Selleck's mustache uh, <laughs> as Indiana Jones. You what know? was like, uh, it, was it Eric Stoltz that was in? Back to the Future back for a while. Back, he was cast, and they uh, he filmed for like three weeks, and they replaced him because he wasn't working out. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, crazy. But one, but I would love to see like a version of Back to the Future, like the Eric Stoltz cut of Back to the Future, <laughs> the you know? Snyder cut. You know, like I, I'm just so like fascinated by like these alternate Hollywood histories, which this movie is obviously fascinated by too. Right. Um, and so I, I think having him like in the Greatest Game and in that episode of FBI, I think that was really really cool to see. Um, let's talk about the Spa and Ranch scene, uh, which is yeah. one of the most intense scenes in the movie. Which that's that's really the most overtly Manson that it gets before yeah. you actually get to the Manson family at the end of the movie. Um, but that's just Cliff Booth going to the Spawn Ranch, and he knows George Spawn from way back because they used to shoot westerns, they used to shoot Bounty Law on the set of, on the Spawn Ranch. So he was like wanted to go see his old friend uh, and wanted to make sure he was okay because uh, you know he <laughs> sees a bunch of hippies hanging around the Spawn Ranch, and he's like, I'm not sure if this is cool. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if this is like something that should be happening. Uh, he's obviously suspicious, uh, and then as soon as he starts voicing those suspicions, like, the hippies, like, turn on him immediately, um, yeah. and it's, it's actually, like, the, the complete 180 that they do, I think, is really, is really interesting. Like, they welcome him at first, like, oh, uh, you know, Margaret Qualley, I forget her name, but her character, like, bring, brought back this guy, <laughs> bro, we, we want to, you know, check him out, and, like, Tex kind of rides by, and he's like, oh, and they talk for a little bit. And then he's like, uh, so can I see George? And they're like, no. <laughs> yeah, it's nap time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then he has that really creepy scene with um, Dakota Fanning playing uh, Squeaky Frome. Yeah. Which I think she was great. And I haven't seen her in a movie in a very, very long time. So I thought that was kind of cool to see her again. Um, but uh, yeah, they have a very creepy scene together. And then he goes and actually sees Bruce Stern as George Spahn. And they have great, I think they have a great scene together. Um, yeah. They, it's actually, it's really nice, um, but also very sad. Uh, yeah. Because obviously these hippies are taking advantage of him, but uh, he doesn't realize it, and there's nothing Brad Pitt can really do about it. So uh, he kind of just goes on his way. But uh, yeah, I think that whole that whole sequence of Spawn Ranch, I think, is one of the most tense sequences of Tarantino's career because you don't like you know they're the Manson family, and you know something could go down at any moment, and nothing really does. But you're like, oh man, like something could. Yeah, yeah, it's got that like weird Hitchcock suspense thing going on where like we know more than him, so it's like, oh no. Yes. Um, but I also got like these weird Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibes because like he go especially when he goes into the 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 house and like we see all the like piled up dishes and the rats and the chicken bones and like just like the disrepair the house is in and just like all these weird creepy shit and, and like it takes a little while like it, sh- it goes to great lengths to show us uh, sure. all these weird things going on. And, like, this weird family that's, like, you know, grandpa. I don't know. It just, like, made me think of that. Um, and then there's also that weird Bruce Dern connection to just, like, he was in a lot of those, like, Hell's Angels motorcycle movies at this time. And, and he's playing right. 
the guy. Like, I don't know. This <laughs> is one of those weird things. Yeah, uh, no, and yeah, weird thing. I was actually, when I was looking up Lancer, um, Bruce Durham was on an episode of Lancer back in the day. Really? Um, yeah. It's a, just a weird little side bit of trivia there. But yeah, other other stuff in the movie, just kind of quick things. I will say, there's one line um, that Kurt Russell says when he's narrating um, that I think is like one of the best lines in Tarantino's career. It's one to highlight it, which is... Um, I think I know what it is. Yeah, it's the moment where they're they're on the plane flying back from Italy after they've shot a couple of spaghetti westerns. Which again, they have the whole sequence where Kurt Russell's narrating that for a really long time. Yeah, like, he's, like it's a really long sequence where he's just like describing like the entire past six months. Is he, the, is he the first narrator too? Because there's one scene that's narrated earlier. And that, yeah, that's also him. Okay, um, which is that's like literally like like ten seconds, and it's it's so short. Whereas like I I recognize the voice immediately, but I wasn't sure for like whose it was. I thought it was Tarantino um, for a second because he does it in in Hateful Eight. In Hateful Eight, yeah, uh, I I knew it wasn't Tarantino's voice. Like immediately, I was sure it wasn't Tarantino, but I couldn't tell who it was. And then Kurt Russell himself actually shows up as the stunt coordinator. Um, which again, kind of a cool, not death proof him being a stunt man. Yeah. Um, with Zoe Bell also being a stunt person in, the mo- in this movie too, which is yep. also cool. Um, but yeah, then Kurt Russell shows up as a stunt coordinator, and then later when the narration kicks in again, I was like, oh shit, that's Kurt Russell. Like, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I think it helped that he was in the movie earlier, but because he talks for such a long amount of time, I probably could have figured out that it was Kurt Russell eventually. Yeah. Um, just the first time it happens, it's like just a quick ten second thing, and then it's done. Um, which almost fell out of place. I was wondering, like, if they were going to bring back the narration at some point, because I was like, what was the, like, <laughs> just this <laughs> yeah. weird aside uh, that they did, which, I mean, he's done before in, like, Inglorious Bastards and stuff. You go Stiglitz. Yes, which is still one of the most badass things of all time. Uh, but anyway, I digress a little bit. Uh, anyway, during that Carlson narration, after Rick and Cliff uh, decide they're going to be uh, kind of parting ways after they come back from Italy... Uh, Kurt Russell has this one line where he's narrating and he says, uh, like, all they know that they're going to do is that tonight when they get back home, uh, they're going to get completely hammered together. Because when you come to the end of the line with a buddy who's a little more than a brother and a little less than a wife, getting getting blind drunk together is the only way to say goodbye. And, like, uh, I I love that. That was such a poetic line. Um, Yeah. And in in a way, like, Tarantino was so good at writing dialogue, but it was poetic in a way that, like, Tarantino's dialogue normally isn't you know what i mean like it it felt and he often has like really rhythmic and memorable and interesting and like stylistic dialogue that only like when you hear it you know it's a tarantino line um and this felt like a different kind of tarantino line and like it felt like a tarantino line but it felt like a different side of him mature Perhaps a little mature. Maybe he's getting a little mature in his in his older age. He's in his fifties now. He was wearing glasses to show that time had passed. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love that. And a lot of this movie is just like a meditation on aging and like trying to, you know, like after you've kind of served your purpose, like trying to figure out like what, what you're doing in life and that kind of thing, like whether. Uh, you are proud of the work you've done in your entire career and all that. And I think Tarantino, is, like, there's a lot of self-reflection going on there. Tarantino himself, like he, um, like he put off having a family and all that kind of stuff because he was just so focused on making movies yeah. uh, for his entire life. And I think he recently got engaged or he was recently married or something like that yeah. um, in like in like 2017. So I think he's like starting to slow down. And he's talking about how he wants to retire after his 10th movie, um, which would theoretically be his next movie after this one. Right. Um, so... Uh, you know, I, I think it's. I think there is a lot of self-reflection going on in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that uh, is very evident in that in that line and in that whole kind of in the whole relationship between Rick and Cliff and um, what they're going through. I, I feel like I had a couple other like stray thoughts about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that I wanted to get out there, but 
I'm kind of blanking on what they were. So, Mike, do you have any other uh, thoughts about the movie before we wrap this up? Um, there is one that I wanted to mention that's just more of just a joke, <laughs> which okay. is there, there's a lot of, you know, Tarantino is, is very fascinated, I think, by these kind of 60s muscle cars and stuff like that. And, sure. And we've talked about how hot Brad Pitt is. Uh, and you put the two things <laughs> okay. together, which is Brad Pitt driving around 1969 Hollywood, and it, we, we're going to get some self-indulgent shit going on, and it's great. Sure. I do love how many times... <laughs> We just follow Brad Pitt's commute, basically. <laughs> it's just him driving around. And uh, all I could think about, there's a Mystery Science Theater episode, and I, couldn't, I can't remember which, which movie it is, uh, yeah. what episode of the, the show it is. But in the movie on Mystery Science Theater, they're like they're, the movie was trying to clearly pad their runtime by just showing everyone pulling out of the parking space, driving to wherever the next scene is, and then parking, and then having the next scene. Yeah. And then the, there's a whole joke. In the, in the end of the movie, they don't do it. They don't show like how they got to the new scene. And they're like, whoa, how did we get here? How did this happen? All this stuff. And I just kept thinking of that the whole time in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood while we see Brad Pitt pull out of uh, you know, Cliff Booth, pull out of Rick Dalton's driveway, get on the yeah. freeway, drive to his house and park and go yes. into his trailer. And I was like, what? We need to see this stuff? And then I was kind of like, because that's also very early, early in the movie, the first time yes. it happens. Uh, and that was kind of where I was still in my, like, oh, I'm disgruntled phase. Um, <laughs> because the theater was messing up, yeah. Yeah, and, like, all this stuff. So I was kind of like, oh, we don't need this five-minute... I mean, the song playing is great, and the music is amazing, obviously, because it's a Tarantino movie, uh, right. set in 1969. But, yeah, so... And then it happens a couple more times, and I was kind of, like, into it the next few times it happened. But I still just always had this mystery science theater joke running in the back of my mind. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I also really love uh, now you bring that scene up actually, where he leaves Rick's house and goes to his own. I love the way it like just completely shows like they're two different lifestyles, like yeah. vastly different ways that they live. Rick Dalton in this big you know house and on Cielo Drive, he's living next to Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, which uh, I think it's interesting. Like you know, this movie takes place in '69 before all the bad shit with Polanski started happening. Um, so everybody kind of refers to Polanski as like he he's the guy who just directed Rosemary's Baby and he's like yeah. hot shit he's like <laughs> so like DiCaprio's freaking out when they see him he's like did you see like that's Rowan fucking Polanski the director of Rosemary's fucking baby he's living next door like this is gonna be this is gonna be big for me this is the big break yeah uh, and I feel like and I feel like the way the movie ends like he could like you know now that he's friends with Sharon Tate he could be in like the next Polanski movie have like a big like career boost after that or something yeah it definitely uh, seems like, that's part of the implication you know yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> he saves Tate's life and she finally invites him in for a drink like come right. hang out with us like that's it Rick's back baby <laughs> see what happens uh, or nothing could happen like who knows who knows because uh, the, the movie ends like, like, any, like after that it's all fancy um, but yeah but I love that, that you know it shows like Rick in like this big fancy mansion and Cliff like just living in this trailer with like, this one dog and he's eating uh, mac and cheese I guess this big dinner which you know I, I, out I, of I, the I pot <laughs> Out of the pot, yeah, for sure. He's like, he lives, like, behind the drive-in movie theater and that kind of thing. Like, you know, he's living a bit... But he also seems very, like, just kind of content to just be whatever. Like, he yeah. seems like... Which, uh, like, he, he has this very laid-back attitude the entire movie, which uh, I thought was kind of cool. But, yeah, also, uh, since uh, we're wrapping this up, but I did want to kind of just make up this one point, that this is, like... This is the first movie that Tarantino has made that is, like, explicitly about actors, um, with the exception of maybe Death Proof, which has, like, an actor character in it with uh, Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character. Yeah. Um, but do, doing the rewatch, like, every single one of Tarantino's movies is about performance in some way, and I think that's a really interesting thread throughout his movies. Like, I mean, Reservoir Dogs, you have Tim Roth pretending to be, uh, the guy, like, one of the uh, gangsters, and, like, he has that whole sequence where he's 
getting into character over months and months of training and yeah. that kind of thing. And in Pulp Fiction, you know, uh, Jules has one line where right before they go into um, that apartment uh, with Vincent, and he says, like, hey, let's get into character. And, like, they kind of, like, put on this mask of um, being these, like, badass criminals. And, you know, Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown's kind of playing both sides the whole movie. And uh, Kill Bill, kind of the same thing with Uma Thurman. She's, like, um, she pretends to be uh, just a regular tourist when she shows up at Tori Hanzo's place and that kind of thing. And there's so, there's so many instances of that in Tarantino's movies with people like acting in some way. And yeah. That's, it's also a big part of Django Unchained where, uh, you know, Christoph Waltz is explaining to Jamie Foxx the whole thing where he's like, all right, you have to get into character and like this, <laughs> that whole thing. And you have to put, put on a persona and that kind of thing. And the bastards uh, have to pretend to be Italian and all that stuff. There's, there's so much of that in his movies. And I think it, I think it's fascinating that this is the first movie he's made that's actually explicitly about actors, um, right? <laughs> which you know I think that's just a really interesting thread that's been going through all of his movies, and it feels like the net like if this was the movie he was going to retire on, which theoretically it's not. There's one more. If this was the movie he was going to retire on, it feels like the right one in a weird way, you know? Yeah. Like it feels it feels like a culmination of everything he's up has been working up to up to this point. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting, Mike. Good, good uh, thread to pick up on. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't. I'm uh, not going to have anything better to say, so I'm just going to say, okay, good job. Fair, fair enough. Uh, so yeah, I, I think we've been talking about it for a while now, so we can kind of wrap this up. Uh, final thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's really good. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really, I really love this movie. Uh, I, as far as the Tarantino ranking goes, um, I'm not really sure where it lies for me right now. I think I have it at number six, but only because like the top five movies that I have, which are. Pulp Fiction and Glorious Bastards, Hateful Eight, and the two Kill Bills are like so deeply ingrained into my DNA um, that it's going to take a little bit of time for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to like think about getting higher up on the list. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's one of those um, things we talked about too. Last uh, off mic last time, like I have to split number one into ten spots, and like this is this is one D or one F. You yeah. know, like it's <laughs> they're all so good, and uh, it's hard to put one of them say one of them is worse than the others. You know, exactly. Uh, so yeah, but anyway, we're both big fans of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, the new movie from Quentin Tarantino, still in theaters right now, I'm probably gonna try to see it a third time before it leaves, uh, and I'll be buying that Blu-ray as soon as, it's, uh, as, soon as yes, it comes yes out. Yes, you will. It, it, it feels like one of the most, it's, it's a movie I'm gonna be rewatching a lot, I think. Um, for sure. But anyway, so that about wraps things up here on Mike and Mike Go to the Movies. Uh, Mike, where can we find you online this week? You can find me at MDFilmBlog on Twitter, and you can find me, uh, MDFilmBlog on Letterboxd. All right, and you can find me at um, Smith Film Blog on Twitter, as well as Radio Mike Sandwich on uh, Instagram, and uh, Mike Smith Film on Letterboxd. Uh, thank you for listening to Mike and Mike Go to the Movies. I'm Mike Smith. That's Mike DiCrescio. Uh Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app. And if you want to contact us, hit us up at Mike and Mike Go to the Movies at gmail.com. Uh, our next episode of Mike and Mike will sort of be a shortened bonus episode uh, because you know, the, it's late August. I've got to fly back for a. Uh, a wedding and all that stuff. The schedules are a little tricky uh, for August. So uh, instead of a full episode next time, we'll be doing a bonus episode where we're talking the new Fast and Furious spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, or sorry, Fast and Furious Presents uh, <laughs> Hobbs and Shaw. <laughs> uh, I saw there was uh, one person tweeted it, and I think I retweeted it, um, but as if like the movie should have opened with like Vin Diesel sitting in a library. Um, <laughs> Like in a bathrobe, reading Vincent a big Price. book that says, <laughs> reading a big book that says Fast and Furious and cursive on it, and he like opens it up and's like, oh hello, didn't see you there. Oh my uh, god! <laughs> tonight's story is called Hobbs and Shaw. <laughs> I would have loved that. Uh, 
That would have been the, the I, I would have given the movie a million stars if that was the, <laughs> if that was the case. Uh, but yeah, we both saw it this weekend. I think we both pretty much enjoyed it, and we'll be uh, talking about it in depth uh, for this bonus episode that we'll be doing uh, in a couple weeks. Uh, plus, keep an eye out for the next complete works, where we will see Nicolas Cage in the Joyce Carol Oates adaptation, "Vengeance: A Love Story." Uh, so looking forward to that. Actually, speaking of Nicolas Cage, I just retweeted that this morning, but uh, Nicolas Cage just did an interview with Vulture for a new movie that just came out. Um, but in this new interview, he talks about his Never on Tuesday cameo. What? Uh, that went viral uh, a couple weeks ago. So if you're interested in that, uh, which we talked about at the top of our last episode of The Complete Works, um, definitely uh, check my Twitter feed. I got the link over there. Uh, and that's the end of this week's episode of Mike and Mike Go to the Movies. We will see you on the other side. Chosen wisely.